Hi, I'm Graham McNeil. I'm the author of False Gods, and this is After Eleanor. Foxcaster Online. Authorization accepted. Upload confirmed. Begin transmission. Horus has seen beyond the veil of this mortal flesh you call life and learnt the truth of your existence. He is privy to the secrets of the ancients, and only he can help you towards perfection. Perfection, whispered Fulgrim. Yes, perfection. The Emperor is imperfect. For if he were perfect, then such things could not happen. Perfection is slow death. Only change is constant. The signal for rebirth. The egg of the phoenix from which you arise. Ask yourself this. What is it you fear? Fulgrim stared into the eyes of the portrait, eyes that were his own, but for the awful knowledge within them. With a clarity born of perfect understanding, Fulgrim knew the answer to the question his reflection had posed him. My fear is to fail, said Fulgrim. And that was a passage from Fulgrim, written by Graham McNeil, the sixth book in the Horus Heresy series, the book which we will be reviewing today on After Olinor, the Horus Heresy uh, book club podcast, and that was read by none other than your host, Greg Dan. Thank you very much, David. Not quite well as read as my co-host last month, I fear, um, David Whitek. <laughs> not, not as hammed up, you might say. <laughs> no, maybe not. Maybe not. I, maybe I, I didn't have time to get into character. <laughs> you I'm not do... too sure I'd want to get into character, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, since you were reading a, uh, uh, what, a cause between a Slaneshi demon and a, and a Primarch? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, folks. Welcome to... Oh, I said it was the sixth book. It's the fifth book. What a dunce. Okay, that was the fifth then, book. Sorry, I man. can't believe I just said that, and I just... What a dunce. Yeah, well... Well, it's easy to get confused. Uh, hey, let's get the mistake started good and early. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Greg, uh, we have some announcements and stuff, don't we? Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, there's a couple of quick announcements at the top of the show. Um, one is, you may have noticed last episode, our sponsorship with Old Games has, has stopped. Um, thank you to Og for, for jumping on board. But we, um, it was just a reminder, really, if someone doesn't want to come on and sponsor the show, we do have space. If you want to send us a message, um, that would be great. Secondly, we said we were going to redraw the um, <clears throat> competition for the Imperial Truth, which has all been done off stage. And the um, oh, that's right. We had to redraw because the last one wasn't like real. They or never contacted never us. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we, I, I've done it all off stage, as said, and um, the winner had left an iTunes review, and it's a uh, Doctor DH on iTunes. So if you'd like to get in contact with us, we can organise sending out a prize. He's from uh, the US of A, I believe. So. It's a bit of a shame he wasn't in England, but there we go. <laughs> so yes, so that's um, that competition won out of the way, and hope, hopefully we can get that prize out. Um, and then, then just um, for those, uh, uh, we've been asked a number of times if we're going to do the um, 
the Forge World books, the Massacre and Betrayal. Um, frankly, me and Dave and I have chatted about this briefly a while ago now, but the independent characters do such a good review of those books. Yeah, just go listen to Carl and them do it. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Um, the latest one, episode 90 and 91 of the independent characters, which uh, released at the start of December from whenever you're listening to this, uh, covers Massacre. So if you want a kind of background bit from from those books, then there's no point us going over the same same uh, ground that they do very well, in in my opinion. So yeah. go and listen to them. Exactly, and plus we're so we got so many books to cover on our own. We just and audio books that adding in more books is just that's too many books. <laughs> yeah, it's a it'll be a lot of work. All right, so Fulgrim. Well, Greg, um, on second reading. Thoughts, quick thoughts before we jump into it. Loved it again. I loved it the first time. I loved it again. First time I liked it. I didn't love it. Second time I really liked it a lot. The things that kind of surprised me because I had no idea, you know, about like who had turned traitor and who hadn't. Right. So things happened in the book and I was like, oh man. And then now I was like, oh wait, (laughs) now I see that coming a mile away. Yeah, Um, I think... One of the good things about it is it, it does it finishes off kind of the starting point of the heresy, as I've said before, um, and it was kind of the last bit of roughly what we knew um, before the heresy books were written. We knew about Isfan Five and, and Isfan Three. We knew about both of those, and it was from then right. on. It was that big gap between then and Terror that we really didn't know about. So this is kind of like the last set, uh, setting the stage book almost. Um, although it isn't, but you know, it's it's that first part kind of settled in place, so we know roughly exactly. Right. You know, we know roughly where everything is um, in in preparation for the rest of the heresy going ahead. Yeah, um, I had a lot more. There's, you know, I knew some of the characters a little better, so I had a little more sympathy for them. I think. Sure. You know, there's other characters that I still reading it the second time going, I wish I got some more on them. I actually have a couple of questions that I logged in with my notes here, stuff that I didn't I was reading going, wait a minute, I don't get this. And okay. you can you can tell me when we get to it, uh if I'm uh, I can try. You can tell me if I'm stepping into spoilers territory or if it's just something that I just don't know as a bit sure. you know, green. Well there's a couple of bits I had to look up. Um I went back and reread Betrayal for a little bit of the history of the Emperor's Children, which as far as I know, it hasn't been printed anywhere else but there. So, Yeah. I actually, like I said, I felt bad for Fulgrim at the end. I mean, I got a lot of questions about this guy. And he's he's kind of stupid, all things being equal, I think. <laughs> but, um, wow. I mean, a lot more sympathy for him. And at the end, I actually, I actually found myself feeling bad for him at the end. Um, I mean, he in a prison of his own making, but you know, at least he's repentant, it seems like. <laughs> you know? Mm, yeah, maybe. I'm hoping so. You know, hey, let me. We'll we'll talk about that when we get to that. That's at the very very end of the book. We are on the beginning yeah. of the book at part one, the perfect warrior. This book, first of all, you know, before we actually jump into the things, there's a lot of of, of recurring, uh, obviously, themes and ideas. This idea of of perfection, of whether or not we should strive for it. Um, yeah. You know what else I noticed, and I didn't notice it so much the first time because the remembrancers kind of annoyed me, is that they're also seeking perfection. He's pulled in all of the the best of the best, you know? Yes. And there seems to be this sense of almost entitlement that goes along with these ideas of them being perfect that the humans have. Mm 
that really you start to see growing, and that becomes almost a cancer in the emperor's children. That sense of I'm better than you, I you know that not perfection for perfection's sake, but sort of that perfection so that I can show that I am better than you, which seems to happen a lot. That was one of the first things I noticed reading Betrayal um, in the background of the Legion itself. Um, Originally, when they were created on Terra, they were um, a lot of the nobles of Terra who had kind of you know been subjugated by the Emperor gave up their children to be like you know to use as as kind of an offering almost okay. and a lot of those were then dragged into the emperor's children ah. so the basis of the legion when it was first formed was formed of those people who um you know were, were better bred were, were better educated were better trained and all that but also quite probably had that superior attitude about them yeah so that was you know it was it was part of the legion's makeup from the start Oh, I see. That's interesting. That's interesting. But yeah. uh, I think we're going to see this recurring over and over oh, and absolutely. over again. Um, a few little religious themes pop in here and there that, that they always do when you're talking about people trying to become gods or thinking that other people are trying to become gods. But I just, I really liked, in fact, I, I had to go back and really look at, well, in fact, one of the first characters, and I'll, we'll, we'll start Chapter 1 in a moment, but Ostian Delaflor, which is, or Delafor, um you know, the sculptor who sculpts the sculpture of yeah. the emperor. You know, at first he felt bad for him. Like, oh, man, poor guy. The one good guy in the middle of it, you know. You know, but then I sit there, you know, I, I'm starting to wonder. I mean, first of all, he's obviously got some character flaws, I think, that I didn't notice the first time I read the book. Um, but he also, I just, I start to wonder if he almost deserves it. It's like, man, you're stupid. <laughs> you know, there's another one that's like, you know, hiding off in his in his little hole and, and just and, um, and ignoring the world. Uh, you know, some of the same issues, you know, basically looking around at all the people. These people are beneath me. Look what they're doing. I mean, we'll get to it later, but I wonder if you caught that at all. Um, y- yes and no. Yeah, there's there's certainly an aspect of that. Otherwise, it, w- it wouldn't be an issue. Um, but there's also the fact that, you know, what other choices does he have? You know, you're on True. a ship traveling yeah. through space millions of miles from home um, and everyone above you is in on what's going on. Um, uh, just kind true. of puts he just kind of puts his head down and go well I'll worry about myself. Um, yes, but when good men do nothing, uh, evil flourishes, abso- and there's absolutely a, you know, and there were, there was a couple of moments where he kind of tried to do something, yeah, and it was that little quirk of fate meant that it didn't quite happen or the right. wrong words were used. There was a couple of moments where he tried, but you know it's one human on a ship. But yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, it's, I'm it's, not saying he could have changed that much i mean he is one human on a ship full of astartes and a primark who's been i think he was well aware of it but yeah yeah so all right well let's jump in then so we start with chapter one got a bunch of characters we're meeting ostian is one the humble seeming artist a a genius sculptor uh serena d'angelis who is a painter who apparently is a very good painter but doesn't think she's very good um she's also um, to have a weird uh, habit of uh, cutting herself. She's an emo cutter. She's an emo cutter, indeed. Um, yeah, all all of the remembrances. I mean, it says later on that you know Fulgrim's tried to bring the best of the best. You know, it's his seat for perfection. Is he's made a few deals back on Terra and said, "No, I want this person. I want that person." Right. So we're looking at already the remembrances are seen to be gifted people. They're already taken from the best poets, the best artists, whatever. But he's then tried to handpick the very best of those. 
Right. So we're, and, we're dealing with those. And, and if you look back through history as well, you you deal with like, Van Gogh and, and all that. Some of them are very troubled people. Well, Van um, Gogh was nuts and had syphilis and all that stuff too. So but he's, he ain't the only one, is he? I mean, you no. can look back through 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 pop music and and all the great people that have had serious issues, all the real talents. So it, it's something that almost runs kind of level yeah. at certain points. So yeah, I can see what you're saying. But let's see, who else do we got in here? Um, and like I said, I'm not trying to brush off what you're saying. I just don't want to get into... No, actually, that's, that's a different conversation. Who die early because they're, they're dumb. But um, There are those as well. <laughs> you know, hey, I might like your music, but don't get crazy on me. Um, now, speaking of crazy musicians, Becca Kinska, or Bella Kinska, whatever was it, yeah. Uh, a diva upon a diva. Oh, my God. So this is the whole opening scene. They're going to see her performance. Um, I kind of like this. She likes Ostian. It's obvious. Ostian cannot stand her because of her ego, which he's got a bit of an ego. You don't see it as much until the very end, but it's there. He just actually, I guess, I guess he is the good example. You know, I mean, he's got some flaws, but at least he keeps them under control and isn't like a maniac. Yeah. I mean, um, he, he's trying. Yeah. I mean, he is completely socially inept. I mean, he, I mean the yeah. point is he's kind of rude to her without necessarily intending to be because he's kind of... He's, let's, just can't handle those situations now. Yeah. We, okay, we're war gamers. We all know people who are socially inept. So, enough said with that. But um, there's nobility there joining the 28th uh, just to see, just to hear her singing. Uh, officers yeah. from the Imperial Army are there. Uh, First Captain Julius is there. Uh, she starts singing, and someone leans over and speaks to his companion who he's with. She stops the show. And has a huge argument with this guy and basically says, I'm not going to sing until you leave. And my good woman, I paid good money to be here. I'm a lord. And she's like, I couldn't care less. Um, <laughs> here it is. Wait here. I love this. I demand you play on woman, started, shouted Paljor Dorji. Do you have any idea how many strings I had to pull to have myself assigned to this expedition in order to hear you play? I neither know nor care, snapped Bequa. Genius such as mine is worth any price. Double it, triple it. You've not even begun to place a value on what you've heard tonight. But it's irrelevant, for I shall play no more this day. So this goes back and forth, and then finally Fulgrim shows up and says, Would you play for me? And of course, you're going to play for Fulgrim, because he's Fulgrim. So. Yeah, there's a, again, a, a very quick scene showing exactly kind of the flaws of everything. <laughs> you've got yeah. the corrupt nature of the, of the, of the, um, the army. Um, the bureaucracy that goes on there that can be abused, and then you've got this obvious problem with this. I say this diva taken to the nth extent, seeking yeah. perfection, and one whisper puts it off. Oh, exactly. You know, just the one, and because I mean, it, it, as I said, you couldn't hear it. She saw him talking to her. She saw him talking to the person next to her and stopped the show. You know, I mean, that, yeah. that's just great. I mean, that's not even as bad as, like, when you see those, uh, you know, like, when what's it, like, Barbara Streisand stops the middle of her show because some guy's phone goes off. Yeah. And so she goes and answers it for him, which is actually really funny, and she's not, like, you know, being horrible to him. But this is just taken to an nth degree. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, but then we jump ahead, and um, they talk about the opening battle of the cleansing of Laren on Atoll 19. Um, I got some questions about this, first of all. Okay. Uh, uh, well, you know what? I guess well, let's let's go to the end of chapter one. I guess just to uh, just to get to the end of this opening battle, and then and then uh, I'll ask my questions. 
let's see, we've got Solomon, second company, captain. Uh, they're pinned down. Support's not there. Uh, it seems like they can't get... Uh, they, they worry that the Laren has intercepted their Vox transmissions, the ones that aren't supposed to be able to be hacked. They seem yeah. to be hacked because the Laren seem to know their moves. Uh, and so Solomon tells Gaius, uh, who's his second in command, uh, they're going in themselves without without backup. Um, the, I love the way the place is described. Um, it's it's hard to look at. Yeah, that's you a know? classic. It's a classic black library talking about something of the warp. Yeah, um, the angles and colors are so over the it's top. Just, it's just it shows you that it's just it's wrong. It's not natural. The, the yeah the angles don't quite work. The colors aren't quite right. It's not quite normal. Yeah, and uh, gives us an indication right at the start of the book where we're going. And then you get this description of Solomon, who knows he's reckless. Like people look back at him, that's not the that's not the best move. That's not the perfect move. He's like, it's the move I have. It's the best move I have right now, which is kind of great. You know, he he realizes he's reckless. He realizes even his second in command is like, what is wrong with you? But he goes for it. You know, he 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 does what he needs to do. Yeah, I've re- I've read it as he's not regimented into that. Thing he he can adapt much like we could saw Loken was prepared to do, you know the right thing as he saw it wasn't regimented into what he was doing. He's he's prepared to think, right? And there's a and there even if that's a lot just, of that, even if that's straight up the middle, it's like yeah, you can all you can almost always find the loyalists in these stories because they are that guy, that more yeah. straight laced you know sort of guy. Um, so. The Lairn, the the Lairn, as I call them, the Lairn. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. They are the yeah, first Xenos race that's been encountered since Olinor. Um, yeah. Now um, they say, as I'm reading here, there was some sort of an accident that almost saw the uh, Emperor's children destroyed, but Fulgrim and his legion rose above it, which is how he got the nickname the Phoenician, rising up like a phoenix. Yeah. Um. What was I going to ask here? Uh, what else? Do you want to know what happened? Yeah, that was that was one of my questions. Yeah, what was yeah, this? It's, again, this was in in betrayal, and it's the first time I've I've read about it at all. Um, is this something from? Is this a spoiler? No, it's, okay. this this doesn't appear in any of the books. Oh, okay, um, it's, it's in betrayal. Oh, it, just oh, under the betrayal. The, the, the yeah, sorry, black yeah, line. not okay. betrayal. Okay, in betrayal. The, the Forgewell book. Um, when the gene seed banks were getting moved from Terra to Luna. Um, the ship carrying the um, the emperor's children gene seed had an accident. They don't know. It says in the book they don't know exactly what happened. Whether it was destroyed on purpose, accidentally, or just got lost, whatever. But they lost all the emperor's gene seed, which wouldn't have been a problem. But on Terra itself, in like the gene seed bank, the, the backup, there was a biovirus release that hit almost all of the legion's gene seed and pr- wiped out the emperor's children gene seed. So they were left with absolutely no gene seed, which is the way they recreate the war- create their warriors. So the only way they could create new warriors was from dead warriors taking out their um, progenoid gland. So unfortunately, in war, you can't always take out the progenoid gland. So basically, they became a dying legion. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And by the time the thing that saved them was finding Fulgrim and being able to use his <coughs> gene seed template play around with it um there was only 200 emperor's children left when they found fulgrim so 
the legion was reduced to 200 men. Okay. Um, and then slowly they started to rebuild. And during that time, as they were rebuilding, the emperor um, said, you know, told, told him to go with Horus. And Horus would then teach his new brother who'd only just joined up and the troops. And they'd stay with Horus, fighting with Horus all yeah, the time. They fought with him for almost a century, it said. Yeah. Uh, until they we, were big enough to go off on as their own yeah, legion. We're talking about the Ultramarines had, had broken 150,000 troops. At the time, the Emperor's children only had 200. So, <laughs> okay. so they had, you know, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't fight as a unit. They had to fight. They had to support. But that explains, and that okay. explains the, the close links between the Lunar Wolves and the Emperor's children. Yeah, okay, I and, get that and, now. And talks about how close um, Fulgrim and Horus came as well as people. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good because that was one of my – that was definitely one of my questions. Now, let's see. The Imperial – an Imperial scouting expedition discovers Lair. They approach the homeworld and they were completely wiped out. Um, and the Mechanicum says that they are at least equal to, if not better than, Imperium's – the Imperium's weapons, which, you know, that's – kind of crazy and of course that's always a reason to go wipe out your opponents because you know you can't have other people with better weapons than you except for the fact that Fulgrim offered them possibility of becoming a protectorate state oh that's right he did one point yeah which is kind of against the imperial truth um and it's interesting to see because this is set you know, oh, a fair wait, no, way. It wasn't Fulgrim, was it? Here, let me read this last. This is the very last two paragraphs of Chapter 1. I'm trying to remember exactly who did it. Administrators from the Council of Terra had yes. postulated that perhaps the Lair could be made a protectorate of the Imperium since conquering such an advanced race could prove a long and costly endeavor. Fulgrim had rejected such a notion out of hand, famously saying, only humanity is perfect and for yeah, an alien us. race to hold its own ideals and technology as comparable to ours is profane. No, the Lair deserve only extinction. And so the cleansing of the lair and it was begun. Yeah, cheers for that. So yeah, but the um, you know it makes it even worse that Terra were looking to offer them protectorate state when they were aliens. Yeah, which already shows you've got duplicity in in the imperial truth almost. And you got some weird stuff going on here. What's that? that that's the Council of Terra. Who honestly, Council of Terra seemed to screw up everything. I mean, I, I hate to. They, they're humans, they will do. Exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. They're just they're coming in trying to. It's, I mean, you know, you know, for all of Horace's, you know, for all of his shortcomings and all the things he did wrong, the Council of Terra showing up was probably one of the few, one of the things he was actually right about being annoyed with. Which is like, what do you guys know about what we're doing here? Um, I run into this all the time with uh, government officials coming in and trying to tell me how I can and can't teach. I mean, I hate to bring it up, but, you know, it's the truth. People who've never taught a day in their life are trying to decide policy on what is the best way to teach children. And, uh, wow, some of the stupid things I hear, you know what I'm saying, uh, coming down as mandates. And I can just picture this with these guys coming, how, telling the Astartes how to prosecute a war. Or that we shouldn't fight these guys or should fight these other guys. Now, here's what I want to bring up about Fulgrim before we go to Chapter 2. Okay. I don't know how else to put this. So, And I don't want to offend any Emperor's Children fans because I like all the Legion. You know, I'm a fanboy. But is he some sort of an idiot? Or is he like... Are the Emperor's Children like the wussiest Legion in the Legions? Because I'm reading this. In every other book, you send in 100 Marines and they'll wipe out a planet. But here, the Legion takes 
huge losses in this upcoming battle that's coming up in the next couple of chapters. I mean, to the point where Fulgrim, it actually says Fulgrim has hidden the true number of deaths. You know, okay. and, and I'm just like, is he is he an idiot and he just wants to prove that he's so good that he rushes in with his perfect plan, not caring how many people die along the way? Which is, I mean, has he just allowed that type of collateral damage, or are they just not as good of fighters as the? I mean, I know they all say they're perfect, but I'm just I'm kind of confused because if they're that good, just the number of loss, it just something's not clicking here with me, and it seems to all kind of come back to Fulgrim. Right. I've simply put that this fight isn't as easy as 6319. The enemy are much, much better. Okay. They're better armed. They're better trained. They're physically superior to most enemies they fought. Um, so did they underestimate them? I don't think they necessarily underestimated them. They went in to fight a fight that they had to fight. No matter they didn't how have good to win it in are. a month. I mean, Fulgrim started doing it. We're going to win this in a month, and we're going to push forward no matter what. You know I what I'm think- saying? Yeah, I think that is potentially part of the um, over over the course of the book. We see the the what leads to the fall of Ful, of Fulgrim and the whole legion, and that's part of it. Um, the Emperor's children spent a good whole section of the Great Crusade sitting as you know a, a bunch of mates around Horus, not actually fighting as a legion. I think if you've got someone who's wants to be perfect like Fulgrim and he never has the opportunity once he finally gets that opportunity he's not going to he's not going to you know want to be seen to be weak he's going to want to say yep we conquered that place in in a month and we did it and we're as good as everyone else okay we're better we're better than everyone else okay Um, but I think, yeah, that the, makes sense. Uh, like I said, it just—I mean, there's a lot of things Fulgrim says and does in here that, I mean, it really starts to. And I didn't catch it the first time around, possibly because I was trying to get through this damn book. Um, you know, 500 it's, it's, pages yeah, in the beginning is a little bit weird because it's really focusing on a lot on these remembrancers. It's some um, case of like if you've got you know two brothers, one of them's you know joined the air force become a flipping commandant and whatever and come out of it and gone into politics and the other guy is not quite as good or whatever and he's struggling to keep up but he really wants to show that he's as good as his brother okay he's not gonna he's not gonna quite you know he's gonna shove a few things under the carpet a few of his mistakes and he's gonna build up his you know the good, good things he's done and i think that comes to part of it his pride you know the fatal pride is hubris i guess you could say um which really comes into play as we as we move through these books. I mean, I do. I kind of feel bad for him in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I just wondered. I mean, he's afraid to be weak. Then they kept saying that the mistake with the legion with the gene seed, and I was just like, is, "What is? Is he inferior stock?" I mean, I just I had no idea what that meant. Now, obviously, you clearing it up that it was just, you know, the ship yeah. was ruined. Be, obviously, obviously different. Um, Two hundred years of Great Crusade, and Fulgrim didn't get found till you know much later. Um, well, not much, but certain part through the crusade, and that he might own their legion might only have been able to fight for thirty or forty years at full strength in crusade. So they've got a lot of glory to catch up on, where you know Horace has been doing it for one hundred and sixty years or whatever. Oh, and he can he can point at you know thousands of planets bought under his name, and and Fulgrim can say, oh, "I bought these ten in." <laughs> it's, it's going to rankle, right? And that's part of it is his inability. To, I mean, he's, when you lock yourself in looking for perfection, and this is—I mean, this is true in any sort of story. I mean, it's like with the, you know, the mad scientist looking for forbidden knowledge. I mean, nobody's perfect, and to try to be perfect is just pretty much unattainable. 
I mean, I think that's what's taught in pretty much every religion and every place. You know, there's only one perfect being, and that's whatever being that you're worshiping, and then everyone else is flawed. Um, And Fulgrim doesn't quite get that. I mean, there's a lot of weird... I mean, he's obviously... I mean, I can only hope that it's the corruption of Slanesh that is clouding his judgment. Otherwise, he has the worst judgment of any... Just about any Primarch we've met so far. I mean, it's I, just... Um, yeah. Um, but any any kind of chaos corruption needs to be able to latch its claws onto something. Mm-hmm. So even even if it was because of the corruption, the corruption can only occur because of the flaws of the person being corrupted. Ah, so at, at worst, it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. But... Um, I, yeah, I mean, he blurred the lines between trying to seek um, his own perfection and actually trying to be perf- perfect. And there's a difference there. You know, you put your own perfection in being as good as you can be, but it, that wasn't good enough for Fulgrim. Well, and that, that happens throughout his Legion, too. I mean, it's all the ones who become like a perfect soldier. I'm good at this job. I do what I do well. Get looked down on. Unless you want to be seen as perfect and to the point almost of flamboyant, of flaunting that perfection, those are the only guys who seem to get noticed in this because of, because of that problem, because of that moving for overall perfection rather than, you know, just being perfect at the things that you're responsible for being perfect at, you know, mm. I guess, you know, I don't know. It, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll get into more of it soon. Uh, should we move to chapter two? Go for it. All right. Uh, they're on the Pride of the Emperor. It's Fulgrim's flagship. I love this ship. It took twice as long to make as any comparable ship. You know, because it had to be have all these special bits and bobs on it. Uh, the Lairn ships were destroyed by the precise use of overwhelming force. Uh, every little description here. It's, you know, it's every shot is a bullseye. It's just that the way they, the way they work. They don't use too much. They don't use too little. Yeah. Um... And it's and the, the 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 use of language in here as they as he describes all of these shots it just hammers it over your head if you're not getting it by now hey guess what they're perfect <laughs> it's done quite well as well because when you read when you read like um, the attack on sixty three nineteen I mean that was smooth and everything went well when you think of space marines that's how you think of space marines anyway so to make one space marine legion more perfect than the others it's quite a difficult job so I, he kind of has to repeat these things a number of times oh, yeah. through the book to try and kind of get over the fact that yes that they're, they're, they're ever so slightly kind of more more perfect in the way they do that but still got those flaws in the way they do this it's not an easy job and it's fun because in his need to constantly repeat it uh to to point it out it's also that it, they're constantly repeating it in their own heads they're constantly pointing yeah. it out to themselves now does this lead to them not Actually, you know, maybe are they trying to convince themselves they're perfect or do they truly believe that they're perfect? If so, it does come across a little conceited when you're constantly telling yourself how perfect everything you do is. And oh, why you can see it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just it's 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 there's there's a, it's a great double use of it is, yes, by constantly repeating it, you are setting them apart. But by constantly have them being the ones who are saying it, you know, I can walk around all day saying how wonderful I am. You know what I'm saying? It, it may or may not be 100% accurate until other people are saying it. And most of the time when it's being described, it's being described through the eyes of one of the emperor's children. 
So yeah. I just I really liked that as a touch, as a, as a bit of a, a literary device, as to push it home that yes, they're a notch above, but constantly throw in that you you get there that uh, narcissism a bit of it comes through. Sure, um, yeah. It it, it 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 was just really well done. I liked it. Uh, let's see. Then you get Julius comes in. Uh, he has an equerry, which I, Indeed. I, I liked the fact that he had an equerry, um, just because in uh, Eisenstein it was so frowned upon by the word bearers that someone would have an equerry. Of course, they're oh, the all death guard. Yeah, yeah. The death guard are saying, "Oh, only a only a guy clinging to stupid old traditions or some sort of a ponce would have an equerry," and then there we go with the emperor's children, and he's got one. Um. They've got a lot more shining of armor to do, to be fair. Well, that is true. There's a lot more gold that needs polishing. <laughs> so this is the point where um, they go in and he has one, they tell him he's got one month to bring the Laren into compliance. And I don't think Julius is the most happy about this. Uh, you know, he's, it's like, you've got to do this. He goes past that image of the, on, on the Phoenix Gate of the Emperor presenting the eagle to Fulgrim. And I'm wondering if that was almost a mistake. I mean, not because of what happens to Fulgrim, but I, I, you know, I kind of draw a parallel to this idea of perfection. And remember when the Emperor said to Horus, make no mistake, we'll rule the galaxy? Mm. And Horus, and I, I, it, heck, there, you never actually get the scene, so maybe he did say it that way, but Horus took it as make no mistakes and we'll rule the galaxy. And it's that burden of doing Pressure. everything right, that uh, that burden of perfection that puts a crack in Horus's... You know, in his veneer, which is kind of what allows Erebus to jump in there, I think. Right. In, in Betrayal, they cover this again. It's another bit that's covered. Um, the Emperor's children before Fulgrim was found were lauded even then as being um, kind of almost the perfect warriors. And the Emperor used them a lot um, in diplomatic missions as well. So they became kind of the Emperor's tool when he wanted to send places. And then when Fulgrim met up with his warriors for the first time, he, he got on his knee to his warriors and, and basically said, you know, we are tools of blah, blah, blah. We are the Emperor's children. Um, and it was just this little speech that's in betrayal, um, which then persuaded the Emperor to give them his mark. So they're obviously they're be, almost being used as equerries in, the, in their own way as diplomats. So giving them the Emperor's seal... Uh, and with Fulgrim doing that. So that was all before the Emperor had got to know, you know, he'd spent a little bit of time with Fulgrim. Okay. So, yeah, it might not have been, I mean, I mean, he's the Emperor, so he probably did know quite a lot about him. Um, but, yeah, that decision-making process, I mean... I, mean, I looking, don't know if, I don't looking, know if mistake is the right it, word, but it's just the pressure of that, you know? I'm, I'm wondering if yeah, there was some pressure I mean, to that. As, as, as you're going to go through and learn... It, across the heresy, the emperor makes some decisions that you would think are they necessarily the right ones. Right. I mean, it might, it might be another one of them. Yeah. Cause this is, like I said, another thing with Fulgrim is obviously got an issue that he's got to prove himself and you just gave him this thing. Now he's got to live up to it, you know? Yeah. So, you know what? Let's stick with the council. This is one of the chapters that kind of jumps back and forth between the fighting on Lairn and the council of the, mi- before the mission starts. So why don't we stick with the mission because uh, Julius is in Fulgrim's council chamber, and they're all waiting for Fulgrim. And Fulgrim loves the remem- remembrancers. Um, but uh, who's like him? Yeah, I, I missed somebody's name here. Hold on. I wrote somebody's last name down and not the first name. Huh. Who the heck? His last name. 
like Lycan? Did I say is that their last name? Lycan's Ly- Ly- the actuary. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So it was okay. Let me start that apart over. So uh, Lycan doesn't like them. This equery. Um and it's 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 funny. Hold on, uh, Julius. On I'm using the soft cover book again. Oh, and at the end of the book, at the end of the uh, episode, we we skipped the cover, so we'll discuss the cover at the oh, end. Oh yes, um, right at the end. Uh, they're talking about it, and Lycan says, uh, "We are warriors, not subjects for poetry and portraits. The pursuit of perfection extends beyond the martial disciplines, Lycan." It encompasses fine arts, literary works, and music. Only recently, I was privileged to hear Becca Kinska's recital, and my heart soared to hear such sweet music. And I was just like, whoa, they've already sort of lost their way. Um, even even like, it's like, you've been reading poetry again, haven't you? I'm kind of seeing this, you know, they're bred to fight and kill. And although you are saving humanity and the humanities and the arts are important... They're already, I think, far too involved with the finer aspects of art and culture. And they should kind of be concentrating on getting the getting the battle one. I mean, am, am, am I? Am, did you did you see that at all? Am I the only one who feels this way? That they've already won the battle. They win the battle before they go. That's what they toast the victory oh, before that, they fight right, the battle. They do that, don't so, they? So, so I mean, that's their attitude. The, the Great Crusade is a done deal. They've just got to go out and do it. So they're, so they're preparing for the next stage, which they know is coming. And yet, yeah, it's an arrogance. Oh, that's a real arrogance, too. In fact, that ha- they yeah. haven't mentioned uh, one of the battles coming up. Somebody, it must, it's, if it's not Saul Tarvitz, it's Solomon Demeter, who are just like, uh, really, this is just getting too much, you know? Yeah. This is no longer a toast. This is a wild party, you know, before the mm. battle. But uh, let's see, Fulgrim shows up, and Vespasian and Edelon. Is it Edelon? Or Eidolon. Eidolon. Are we going with Eidolon? Okay. Vespasian and Eidolon show up. Um, He gets a good reception. Yes, he does. He's lost the chthonic harshness that he picked up from the Luna Wolves, they've noticed. The the, the bit of an accent that he's picked up is gone. (laughs) Back to speaking properly. Um, And... This is, you know, it's 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 funny that you said earlier how, you know, you've got this older brother who's like, you know, becomes this guy and becomes a politician. Remember mm. all the things Horace was doing with the Mornival, how he was sort of, you know, having people come up and speak and twisting things and setting it up so he could knock it down. And Fulgrim pulls the same thing with this Thaddeus fail from the Imperial Army. You know? Yeah. Uh, he wants to know why they're planning or they're going, they're planning a war after Fulgrim's already sent troops. And he wants to know, you know, the, if the Council of Terror wanted to make them a protectorate, why didn't we? Um, now, he can address Fulgrim directly, and that's, you know, that's impressive for a human. The fact that he's even just talking back to Horus when most humans would look at a Primarch and be dumbstruck, unable to, you know, even remember their own name. Yeah, I think once kind of get you get to a certain level, you know, these guys have spent time around the Primarchs because they have to because right the, the Primarchs have to say I want your troops here and here and here. So this you know this guy might have been around Primarchs quite a while. Right, but and yeah. you know, and plus, I mean, you get that high up in the military, you're just used to being. You know, he's not as easily cowed, I guess, as mm. as 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 an average Joe on the street. Um, I love this this 
go back and forth between them. So, you know, he tells him that the scout force tested the enemy, um, the, you know, and he's like, that's not enough. The disruption of our ships isn't enough. You know, the destruction of sh- scout ships, you know, you seem bent on war. And Fulgham's like, yeah, and? And it fails just like, oh, uh, oh, okay. Totally backs down. They destroyed our ships. That's not enough. What do you mean that's not enough? So then um, then he asks um, Julius if he's ready to, if he's ready. Then he tosses off his robes to reveal his battle plate and announces that they will take Laren in a month. He's already got the plan. I mean, they're all sort of, they, they were drawn together on the under the auspices of making a plan. But, of course, Fulgrim has a pl- I have the perfect plan. Yeah, absolutely. So he's, I mean, he, yeah, he knows what's going on. He's, he's already set. I like the way he talked to um, Fail. He talked to him, not quite as an equal, but there was a, you know, he apologized to him. He, and, he, and he even, you know, um, thank you for questioning. Um, you, you know, you should be questioning. You're right to question. Um, a man's character can be judged by his questions. So he, at this point, you know, he's, he's a greatly, he's, we can see how kind of, as, as a person he is, you know, he's prepared to do that, whereas some of the others would still say to humans, now I'm in charge. Yeah, and he's, and he's, and he's, he's kind of schmoozing, playing the politician a bit, you know. Yeah. So, meanwhile, back on Laren, you've got Solomon in, this, in the second, uh, what's the second company? He's the captain of the second, uh, what's this? What am I, what am I Captain of the second company, yeah. Second company, right. So he's down there. Now, he's noticing that all the Laren are different. They're like, they're vastly different. Uh, he doesn't know if it's mutation or it's deliberate, but they seem to be different Laren beings for different, like, roles. You know, like almost yeah. if they have a caste society or something like that. And, but these guys are physically different to depending on the job they need to do. Um, he decides he doesn't care if it's a mutation or, or if it's deliberate. They're, they got to die. Um I love he puts his yeah. bolter on the ground and draws his chain blood. Now, okay, here's me. First time I'm reading through this, I never noticed things like this. He puts his bolter on the ground and draws his chain blade. And I'm thinking, doesn't he have that magnetized leg like everybody else does? That's exactly what I've written down. Did you? <laughs> I was trying to remember in if it was um, Graham McNeil that did it with uh, the Death Guard before. I can't remember if it was in False Gods or... I can't remember um, which book it was either. It might, it might have been McNeil before, but I was like, I'm pretty sure they could be maglocked at this point. Yeah. Um, and you you wouldn't put your bolter down. I'm fairly sure. No, exactly. I was just like, you put your bolter down? We'll let that, we'll let that off. Okay. It's actually, at, the, at this point, I would say, um, when I was at um, the Black Library Weekender, some of the questions were coming in, and um, Dan Abnett and that looked around and said, look, sometimes we just write stuff, and sometimes stuff's written just to get us from sentence A to sentence B, right? And sometimes you lot read far too much into what we've just written. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it, it could be here is a, is a small thing we're going to have a laugh with. There are some things we might look into as readers that we look into far too much detail. Um, and it's just hey, something, hey, remember you know when, when we're... When, Graham when, McNeil's when a David, much better author than I am. Oh, no, no, yeah, know, no, but, no, this is no having to go anyway. But when, just saying, David, when you and I are talking about something, other people may be listening to this thinking, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. It's like, it's our interpretation of what a guy's written. And he yeah. might write, 
he might write, oh, he threw his bolter down, and we interpret that in a way when actually he just threw his bolter down. And exactly. there's no ulterior motive <laughs> in it at all. So we are always in danger of overreading a situation in these books. But it's part of the fun. It is. All right, so he gets through, and then there's a big shift in the ground, and he falls in a hole, and as he's climbing up, a lair attacks him near the top, and he's fighting this thing, and it seems like he's got a power weapon. Is that what it's... I mean, he's got this weapon that, you know, it's... it. It's got an electrical glow to it. When it's cutting, it seems to cut through armor better. It reminded me of one of the, you know, uh, uh, of a, an Astartes power sword or something like that. It seems to share uh, similarities. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but they said that their their technology is at least as good. So when I saw them, I'm like, ooh, they got a power weapon. Um, he, now here's he. The Lairns are all screaming. They just scream like they seem to scream constantly during battle. And Solomon thinks he hears that, like, they're enjoying it. Like, as they're fighting and as he's hurting it even, the thing seems to scream in pleasure more than in pain. And he's kind of he's kind of sickened by it. Um, yeah. We get, we, we get a sense um, all the way through this chapter, the, the, the fighting part of this chapter. The layer warriors are, you know, they're, they're snake-like bodies. They slither. Um, they utilize sound as weapons. Um, a lot of their weapons are sound-based. Um, they've got unnatural forms, as you said, different forms in, in different aspects of the, the thing. Um, all the angles and things that hurt the eye. Um, anyone who's played any 40K or fantasy, you know, it screams to you that there's a Slanesh Chaos taint oh, yeah. on this planet. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's just anyone, anyone who's ever been involved, it's, you, you're automatically led to all those little, little hints are in there. Exactly. That this place ain't a good place to be. Now, I love the end of this chapter where they're surrounded and there's just so many of these things coming after them. And he's gone up the middle and the guys haven't gotten to him. And he's just he's fighting. He's fighting. He's like, we will not fail. We're not going to give up. So they just kind of form a tighter circle and keep fighting. You know, oh, yeah. that, that total space marines. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're not giving up. We're just going to keep fighting until this fight is done. And uh even though they look tired and they've been killing and fighting this whole time, that oh, yeah, just, that, yeah. just that little speech refreshes them, you know, because they're, like you said, they're space marines. <laughs> yeah, they don't run from anything. Yeah. So um, let's jump to chapter three and keep this battle going, huh? Yeah, bolter porn chapter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we got a little bit of artsy-fartsy <laughs> stuff going on in the chapter two with the remembrancers, but... Uh, Marius, the captain of the third company, he's got his objective secured, but they've taken a ton of casualties, and he cannot get he can't get uh, Solomon on the, on the Vox, but he regionally gets close enough where he can get through, and he reaches uh, Kaifen, and um, he's like, "We can't get to you. We're stuck. We don't have enough guys. We took too many casualties." So he says to give us a, a signal because they can't. <laughs> You know, they can't find him. And the roads keep twisting. The roads are as twisted as the lair in themselves. And so finally he says, screw it, and just starts going straight towards where he's supposed to be, going <laughs> over or th- I'm going through the walls or over them. It's like he's in a hedge mage, and he's like, screw it, I'm going through the hedges. I'm going. Yep, too right. Uh, the signal that they give him is fantastic. <laughs> um, he, he, the... The, he brings down the building, <laughs> basically. Gavin just brings down one of his temple buildings, so he can't find Demeter in all of this, this 
this hectic, crazy battle going on, but by collapsing the building and the smoke rising from it, there it acts as a, 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 a point to yeah, beacon to for everyone to congregate to. Um, and they are in trouble because the Laren have have, a, have anticipated their flank attack, and we're w- waiting to jump the flankers. So they're all in a real bad way until the third finally does show up and head towards yeah, them. I mean, yeah. It shows you the you know the the aliens are able to kind of set up these ambushes and things like that. It does show you the the metal of the opponent they're up against. Yeah, you know, it's it's a very good opponent that they're you know a threat in close combat and they're a threat in the way they organize and all that it's 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 a tough old battle this one yeah uh marius uh, demeter is still fighting and they're getting outnumbered and slowly but surely even though they're killing them 10 to 1 they're starting to lose and um verosi uh, marius and uh Verosian and Gaius, yeah Verosian and oh, Gaius, Gaius yeah. Kaifen, yeah they they finally arrive and wipe out the 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 remainder of them and yeah. um Solomon and um Verosian are they're talking about the, dis- the the difficulties in the battle and uh you know whether Gaius Kaifen is anything more than a line officer and they get a lot of these conversations come up I mentioned it earlier um, you know, he's just—he's no better than a line officer. He's good, but he's not a line. O- well, why isn't why isn't he more than a line officer? He does his job well. He's faithful. He's loyal, but he's not a braggart. He's not sitting around saying, "Oh, pay attention to all the things I can do." Which, I mean, am I am I wrong in that, or, or are you getting that too? I mean, that seems to be—I mean, that's what they kept saying about Saul Tarvitz. He'll never be anything. He's just a—you know—every time, every time again, I yeah, saw him. Yeah, they they seem to have mistaken the um, the personal drive of ambition to achieve as part of perfection. Yeah, which is uh, I say in betrayal where they link in with a lot of that kind of nobility, kind of seeking to put yourself above someone rather than actually just to become the best person you can, but to kind of prove that you are better has uh, become as leaked into part. It's kind of corrupted their version of perfection. Yeah. So once they finish and take this bunker, though, they've got this Atoll 19. And so they start, you know, loading up and, 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 and cleaning up. Uh, and the gunships start dropping in uh, and start transforming it into their bulkhead. This is where they're going to take Laren from. Is they've, they've taken this one. They've got one base, basically, they've taken over. They're going to they're gonna make that where they drop all their stuff in and start moving out to take all the other ones. Because they're all these floating... Giant little, these are basically floating islands, aren't they? They're floating above because yeah, the whole, the whole, rock, the whole formations. Yeah, the whole planet's like a water, you know, based world. Apparently. It's quite a cool world. Yeah, and it's all floating over it. So this is they're going to go from island to island, but this is the first one, and they take that one. Um. Meanwhile, when this is all going on, and the fleet's disembarking to come down there. Uh, Ostian and Serena are watching the fleet disembark from the observation deck. Uh, Ostian didn't want to go, wanted to sit and sit with his giant block of marble that he's working on. Um, but Serena drags him, and he goes anywhere with her because he really likes her. So you get a nice little human interaction there. He's never seen the sea. Um, and, and she... Because there is no sea on Terra. Yeah. And, All and, got bored away. And she and she just wants to uh, 
she wants him to come down and and see this when they when they got the planet secured so she can see it. I like she can't mix the color for the sky she saw in twenty eight two, and as she says this, she cuts herself as she's complaining about her inability to recreate a color that she saw that she's trying to create. She's a freak. Okay. Uh, well, there are people like that around. Uh, you know, yeah. People- People who self harm. I, I don't want to go around and say everyone who self harms is a freak. Okay. She's she, okay. she she manifests her her emotional failure in in a physical form. Okay, um, um, I'm just going to go directly from a pure uh, psycho- psychology student from the psychology book point of self mutilation as punishment for your oh, own perceived shortcomings yeah, is a mental disorder. She's yeah, okay. it's, it, yeah, you're right. It's not a good place to be whatsoever. Right. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's it's not it's not something we, we, we're not familiar with. with right. Here. It's, yeah, it's the way she manifests her, her, her you know, disappointment and and all that. And it, but it's not it's it's not a good place to be. And, and ideally, someone would be helping her out and finding a way to, to sort it out. Yeah. But she manages to keep it. Yeah, fairly. And, he, and he's once again, he's not going to say anything to her. He's too shy to say anything to her. He likes her. He's he too doesn't enamored tell her. with her. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't want to lose a friendship. Right. Yeah, he's got one of those things where he's afraid to say anything to her about more than anything more than a friendship because he's afraid to ruin what he has. Exactly. You know, he's, he'd rather hold on to what, you know, the little thing than, than take a risk for the, the big risk. thing. Um, now, she goes off to go to sleep. He's telling her she's, she's, she looks exhausted, but he sits there and he's just watching the planet. He's never seen the sea before and looking at it even from this distance it's it's an amazing beautiful planet and that's when Bekwakinska shows up and starts hitting on him and like really hardcore not even hitting on him she's throwing herself at him oh yes and he thinks she's kind of vulgar and he's kind of grossed out by her uh he's kind of grossed out by how forward and blunt and and sort of freaky she is um, <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of, of what he would want. Well, I mean, she actually starts telling him the idea that the idea of war gets her all hot. <laughs> you know, you're like, um, yeah. oh, ye. Uh, in fact, she does this great little. This is like one of the first times you start to see this this sort of uh, theory or this philosophy pop up. And if you're on the soft cover, I'm on the last page of chapter three, page sixty four. And he's saying, but, she goes, but nothing, Ostian, said Beckwood, jabbing him in the chest with long, painted fingernail and pushing him back against the glass. The body is the soul's prison unless all five senses are fully developed and open. Open your senses and the windows to your soul fly open. I've always found that when sex involves all five senses, it's quite mystical experience. And he just, like, yells no and, like, like he runs away from her. You know what I'm saying? He's mm. just really... You know, kind of. Then she's oh, stop being silly. I won't hurt you unless you want me to. And he's just like, oh, ew, lady, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and on on top of that as well, I mean, he's probably thinking, oh, if people find out I've been, if Serena finds out I've been doing this, then that is going to put pay to anything. Even though I'm not brave enough to make a move, yes, you know, that puts pay to anything there as well. So you've got again, you've got that that whole kind of. I don't like girls. Don't like you know. I can't yeah. do it. It's all there. But he turns her down, and what he? Oh, you're yeah. with the painter woman. He's like, yes, we're very much in love. He sees a way out, and, and also, he kind of believes it. Wants to believe it. Yeah, but she now hates him. I mean, she hates him. 
He well, turned no her, turns down. her down. I'm in love with someone else. He turned her down. She pouted and folded her arms, her entire body telling him she was now less. he was now less than some scum to her. He started to say something else. Because, no, you can go away now. I'm quite finished talking to you. And so oh, yeah. he leaves. She's well, a proper diva. Oh, she's awful. She's just awful. But that's the end of Chapter 3. So let's try to move on to Chapter 4. I think these... I think there are five chapters per part, because there's five parts to this here uh, book. So let's try to get through them. Yeah, there's five chapters per part. Let's try to get through four and five quickly and then take a break. Because at the rate we're going, this one's going to be a two-parter if we don't uh, keep keep these chapters <laughs> moving. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's decent, so many characters. Yeah, I mean, it's not until the end. And it's so funny how at the end, the actual battle on, battle on Istvan 5 is like the shortest part of the book. Yes. It's just like, you know, just, hey, dude, I can't describe. There's like 60, 70, 80 million Marines down there, and they're all dying. So, And they're dying fast. So I said, like, yeah. oh, man, okay. So let's see. Um, oh, Chapter 4 starts out saying how the cleansing of Laren is the epitome of Fulgrim's quest for perfection. It's done at a miraculous speed. Each battle, well, even though it's done at a miraculous speed, each battle is bringing lots of dead for the uh, Emperor's children. Um, with each battle, the captains gained renown and Fulgrim commissioned hundreds of works of art in their honor. So Fulgrim is, is having hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of art commissioned for all the different uh, captains who, whenever they do something particularly worthy of a song or or that... Um, yeah. Jeez. Uh, Kerson... Julius gets to uh, lead frontline troops under Vespasian, which is a big honor because Vespasian is, is you know, he's like uh, Eidolon. Yep, he's fairly high up. Uh, Eidolon was actually Vespasian senior, but he led the forces on 28-2, so it's Vespasian's turn. Yeah. Um, so they take atolls and undersea cities. Um Demeter, yeah, it's, yeah. A, a nice little again, a, a nice little explanation of how how hard the fighting was, but how well they did it. Um, you know, three quarters of a legion kind of in action. It's it's no small battle this one. No, um, and they fought on a variety of environments at the same time, and um, and succeeded. Yeah, great at great toll. But you know, as we said, these 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 aliens are quite quite tough. Yeah. And then Verosian takes several lair orbitals that had escaped detection. Um, Julius leads the battles for the atolls, and he finds a pattern. Um, they orbit this one that seems rather insignificant. Uh, it's not all done up like the other ones. Uh, and they're guessing that's the seat of government. But it's Fulgrim who realizes it's yeah. not. It's a Fulgrim. church. Yeah. Fulgrim works, works out the pattern and the true purpose. Well, he's the smart one. He is the daddy. <laughs> Um, this is where it gets interesting. Yeah, um, you know they all this description of all these battles that are going on. I'm sort of reading through my notes here, just you know these things. But now we we meet apothecary Fabius. Is it Fabius? Um, Fabius. Fabius. Uh, Fabius. Fabius. Okay. Well, I'd li- I just I just want us to both, uh, as long as we can agree to say it the same way on the show. If, ah. we're, if we're wrong, let's be wrong <laughs> together. <laughs> Who knows? As, as long as it's not way out. As long um, as they're not coming in in the Calvary, then I'm okay. No, um, I've always heard of it as Fabius. Okay, so it's Fabius. Is uh, He's studying the Laren bodies, and he tells Fulgrim they're all genetically the same, 
but they're altered for their role in society. So this is sort of weird Brave New World stuff, if you read Brave New World. Uh, back when you were in high school, if you had to read that. Nope. Oh, um, it's set in the future where everybody's cloned, and you're literally cloned, yeah. and there's hundreds of you, and you, you do a specific job. You're genetically bred mm. to be either big and strong or super intelligent or whatever, because that's, that's your gig. You know, yeah. kind of like the new Superman movie, too. Yeah, you're born into your role, yeah. Exactly. Um, so he tells them they're all altered, and they're striving for perfection. And he says, you know, the space marines could uh, become even more perfect with we altered ourselves. And Fulgrim is interested in this because if they can be improved, they can become closer to perfection. At first, he's a little offended. Wait a minute. You, you wait. These guys? You want to compare us to these Xeno scum? Mm. But, you know, then they can be altered. If you become more perfect. The idea of being more perfect, it just is... <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, what grabs Fulgrim in. But does the irony escape all of these people? No, no. <laughs> I mean, it's like, when's it going to stop? Yeah, how can you be more perfect if you're perfect? I mean, perfect has something that's implied in it. You know, perfection. You can't be more or most perfect. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, it'll be, be interesting, kind of, because Fabius here, he's, um, he's got this interest and he's going through these bodies. And then he's thinking, oh, maybe I could play around with Space Marine yeah. kind of DNA. And that's kind of heretical. That's, that's way out. You, you, know, that's, yeah. you don't, do not mess with the Emperor's, um, you know, the emperor's uh, vision. Um, so you've got that. And then he mentions it to Fulgrim. And then he starts to clarify and to justify to Fulgrim. And he leads Fulgrim into kind of going... Oh yeah, well we could try it. If it doesn't work, nothing's going to happen. We stop it. If something, we can have a look at it. And it's like you know, where along this scale was is Fabius always been like this? Has something affected him? That's a, one of the kind of questions this that came up reading this time around. How where where is Fabius in this? Was this just a, a fault in his makeup? Well, that's his pride. He's you know he's the one. This here, this is this is Saruman doing ring research and getting corrupted by it i think yeah personally this yeah. is every mad scientist every guy every Maybe. guy who's trying to read the necronomicon and and break its secrets and then gets sucked up by a bunch of shoggoths this that's this guy right here yeah i mean he's he he feels that strong he's brave enough to mention it to fulgrim i mean yeah. if you did that to almost any other primarch you'd at be that killed time, out of you'd, hand you, you probably would be killed well, isn't um, that in the Bad Ab War? Isn't that part of what's going on? Is they're altering and stealing gene seed and trying to alter it? Is, is it um, it's Bad Ab War is, um, so in 40K, you're only allowed uh, chapters limited to around 1,000 people per chapter to stop um, too many turning heretic at once. Um, the tyrant of Bad Ab War, um, Huron Blackheart, actually, what, he just steals gene seed to make more space marines. He's trying to build a new legion. Oh, okay. That's, he doesn't, tinker with it too much as far as i recall but he's um, i know in one of those books there was tinkering that's all i don't know, there, I don't know there which might one. Be. to be fair there might have been it's, it's been a while since i've read that one but he was certainly trying to build a bigger force than he was allowed okay so let's see what do we got so now we get to this now we meet the brotherhood of the phoenix because if you're going to have a lodge let's give yeah, it a better name. name because come on lodge we're we're emperor's children the Brotherhood it's not of the far Phoenix. from the Order of the Phoenix, though, which is worrying. 
<laughs> it's very far from the order of the phoenix. Let, don't 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 besmirch my Harry Potter, okay? So so good. <laughs> so there's new captains in here because so many of the Ember's children are dying. They're bringing up new captains, and of course they're bringing them into the lodge. Uh, Julius, Solomon, and Marius are all talking. You know, you got your one, two, and three. Uh, Solomon is making jokes, and Marius is really pissed off. He's like, you don't even make jokes about this. Our our brothers are dying. Mm. Um, which I, th- I mean, and you realize basically Marius is so is still kicking himself in the pants for not making it to that battle on time. Yes, it, yeah, that's that's seen as kind of the way the Legion works. You know, I have failed because I couldn't do that. Even if they haven't failed, even if they've exceeded what they actually could do, the fact that they were set a target and didn't reach it, period, that's a failure. Yeah, and later on it comes up because they're like, dude, you couldn't have. There was no way. You took so many losses just from from sh- sh- shooting. Like, the mm. resistance was twice what we had estimated it was. You couldn't have made He doesn't listen. He doesn't want to hear it. No. It's that um, they've, got no, they've got no system of... Um, of kind of dealing with not achieving, even if it wasn't their fault, um, which again leads into the whole fall because there's no, you know, it's either you achieve and you're perfect or you don't. There's nothing in between them to say, well, unlucky. That's yeah. not that, that, that's not part of their deal. Now, I love their lodge meeting too. Fulgrim shows up with the big cape and the feathers. Yeah, the Phoenician. I mean, it, it, this this really this part actually cracked me up a bit, and it's that last uh, on page. Well, I'm on like I'm on page seventy seven. The last part of this scene at the lodge meeting, though the circular table was in theory supposed to do with rank, do away with rank and position. There was no doubting who the master of this gathering was. Other legions may have in, a more informal setting for their warrior lodges, but the emperor's children thrived on tradition and ritual. For in repetition came perfection. Brothers of the Phoenix, said Fulgrim, in the fire I welcome you. So even their lodge meeting, I mean, remember, I remember the only other lodge meetings we were privy to were the ones, uh, the the ones it, uh, in the in the first books with the um, yeah. with the sons with the of sons. Horus. Yeah. And dude, they were meeting in like the boiler room under cloaks and stuff. It's like this is a quiet little thing. He's got a big pomp and pageantry. He can't do anything. No, it's all about Fulgrim. <laughs> exactly. It's all about Fulgrim. But actually, and it also gives him a lot of control. So we get we get to see the lodge, the lodge, in and we know that Erebus used the lodge in the Sons of Horus. Oh yeah, here it's Fulgrim's lodge. So um, the actual the way the lodge works within aspect of what happens in the book is very very different. Yeah. Um. And there's one other part that they go back that's in the meeting, and let's I'll finish the meeting before we jump back because there's yeah, one little good. thing going on with Becca Kinska. But um, even in their informality, I was writing, their formal, selective, elitist, elitist, this warrior's lodge was only for the officers of ranks. So they didn't invite any, it's supposed to be for anybody, except in the emperor's children, they don't invite the rank and file. It's for all the different levels of captains. and They probably probably wouldn't turn up anyway, because they wouldn't think they're perfect enough to turn up. Uh, That's true. Um, You know, it's just one of those things, it's a... It's that kind of cycle that they breed into, but everything. That's where Saul Tarvitz and Lucius show up to the first, the yes. first lodge meeting because they're it's they were brought up. They've become captains, and um, so they're brought up to this meeting. Um, Solomon goes up and goes 
you talking about where Solomon um, Tarvitz nods to Solomon Solomon nods back yeah yeah, he returned the gesture, understanding in a moment there was no greatness to the warrior and that he would never amount to much. Yes, that's like it. And all it is, is Tarvitz showing a bit of humility. Uh, but Tarvitz had what Maris would call the look of a line officer. Yeah. So it's just, you know, they're, they're all thinking the same thing and it's not even seen as derogatory. Yeah, he likes Rocious. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But Fulgrim tells him they're going to join Ferris Manus. And Fulgrim is closer to Ferris Manus than anyone, which I thought was interesting, even closer than Horus, apparently. Yeah, you got a special bond. Yeah, so so Eidolon and Tarvitz and Lucius are going on a different mission. They're going to be doing something else, and that's where they get sent to murder, isn't it? Yeah, they get sent to they, well, they get sent off that way and, and come across the distress signal. Right, um, and then they toast their imminent victory over the Lairn. Because you have to toast your imminent victory over the Laird. Um, but so there, there's the plan. We're splitting up. We're going to go join Ferris Manus and help him with the problem, but not you guys. And there's always disappointment when they get split up because, you know, they, nobody likes to get split up from their Primarch. No, but, and, and, and the job they're going to do as well is to maintain the uh, – see that the governors are maintaining the lawful rule of the emperor. There's no glory in going to check on people. No, oh, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. But I will like to say, before we move on, yep. David and I are going to be at Adepticon playing in the Warhammer team tournament. Oh, goodness, yes. And I, I feel that we should be toasting our victory before every game. Oh, I think we should. Um <laughs> That way, when the loss comes, I'll have been. I'll be a little inebriated, and I won't yeah, feel as bad. I'll be on the. I'll be on the water or something, but it'll be fine. Yeah, we'll have a little toast of our victory. <laughs> that's all right. right that's so, all right. So let's get to this last part with Becca Kinska. This is fantastic. Okay, I must admit, it's been so long since I've read it. Right at the first chapter, I kind of wrote down three or four of the names. I was like, this guy's the straight guy. This guy's, are we going to be comparing this guy to Loken? Because I couldn't remember exactly yeah, how yeah, it exactly. worked out through the book. But yeah, it's quite so, well done. So they've got this one last part with uh, Becca Kinska. And she's in her stateroom and she's all just furious. She can't even write because this Delafour had the, the nerve to... Yeah. Reject her. Now, this is the part I was just, okay. Though the boy was plain and unassuming, with no great physical attributes to recommend him over the lover she had taken over the years, he was young, and Bequa craved the adoration of the young above all else. They had such innocence, and to corrupt that with the bitterness of age and experience was one of the few pleasures left to her. Since her earliest years, Becca had been able to have any man or woman she desired. Nothing had been beyond her. To be denied something now, when she had the opportunity to achieve the incredible, was supremely frustrating. Um, it's, you know, she swears that she's going to get him back. Nobody rejects her. Um, you know, she just, it just goes on and on about how... She ain't a nice lady. No, and she likes to corrupt the innocent. I mean, she's just... Yeah. You know, she she's given everything at this point, and now she kind of expects it, and it's not enough. So now she's looking for like sick ways to just find some fun in her life. It's just really, it's icky. She's a really yucky person. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I just I wanted say, to bring really. it up. I mean, I just wanted to bring that part up because once again, the idea of these people who are supposed to be better than everybody. Wind up just twisted, angry, bitter old people. It's like, you know, 
you, you can't be perfect all the time, and people expect it. And then when you start acting perfect all the time, you know, you start it, to, Yeah, something else manifests. Yeah. It's something just, has to balance out. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So let's get to this uh, chapter five and finish up part one. Uh, okay, 900 aircraft take off from the final air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Solomon doesn't like flying in. He doesn't like anything that's outside of his control. Yeah, that, um, uh, yeah, that's something you see quite often with space marines. It's like they don't mind going into battle where they can fight, but sitting in and having someone pilot them in is not a comfortable place. Yeah, it's like they put their fate in someone else's hands and they don't like it. Um, he actually says, too many to, will die without earning a warrior's fate. You know? And that's... Yeah. <laughs> I know... Kaifen laughs at him. Says, "I'm going to report you to the chaplain." You start talking about fate and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> what do you? You can next thing you're going to start believing in, in gods and demons. Um, but Solomon goes up to the flight deck, and he doesn't think he's superstitious. He just, you know, honing your battle gear is sensible. You know, because um, they talk about how he's always doing his little his little rituals and stuff, and he's not being superstitious. He's just, you know, being sensible. I, 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 that was one link with Loken. You kind of get a little, yeah, he's got his own little things. He does his routines and stuff. And a routine could be a superstition. Yeah. Depending on how you people view it. But he, he knows in his head, he's having a little kind of, oh, I'm not superstitious. It's just my little thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's quite, he's quite sensible, quite logical about it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even, um, yeah, I love the fact that even the insides of the Stormbirds are completely over decorated. Yeah. It's, like way over it's such a change after the last book where everything was completely yeah. undecorated. Yeah. I mean, going from Mortarian's group to Fulgrim's group is such uh I mean, it's just it's an almost disgusting amount of change, you know? It's like, wow. <laughs> you know, you compare the two and you're not going now from 0 to 60. You're going from like negative 50 to 60. It just it makes it oh, even all the more drastic. The yeah. Spectrum, yeah. But so uh Solomon's ship is shot down and he goes into the water. And that's all you see of him in this battle, um, which is sad because I kind of like that guy. Um, it's quite good in the end, though. Yeah. So Julius lands, and he's in Terminator armor. Oh, yeah. And he's yeah. leading his squad of Terminators from Ancient Rylanor is there, smashing stuff and taking names. Uh, he takes a shot of green energy, which causes a little damage to his uh, carapace. Which, yeah, it's, uh, it carved through the Mark IV plate, barely scratched Terminator armor. Yeah, I mean, I mean, forty K's changed uh, quite a lot down the years. You look back at old Second Edition, and they used to use a diff- different kind of dice, D8s and D12s, all involved. Um, term- every every weapon used to have a, a, an armor modifier save, like it does in Warhammer. So, uh-huh. um, a Las cannon would be minus eight, I think. Um, and a, a bolt gun would be minus one, minus two, something like that. Um, Terminators had a three plus save on two d six. Oh wow! So, yeah, it was you know. So even a plus eight, fight. you're going to have an ele- You got to still get a chance at eleven yeah, or twelve. It was it was something like that. Yeah, um, and the small arms fire, you'd need a shed ton of it to start bringing down a <laughs> to terminate. You know, it shows you. I mean, they've simplified it a lot since then. They've given it oh, the yeah, no kidding, save. Huh? But, um, but yeah, that shows you kind of how tough Terminator armor was kind of envisaged in cool. game. All right. So then, and I, but I love that Ancient Rylanor takes a bit of damage because that winds up in the previous book where Ancient Rylanor, yeah. you know, that's that, that is, I mean, am I wrong? I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking this is the crack 
the it minor hairline yeah, I mean, crack yeah, it, that winds up killing him in the end. Because they've actually mentioned that he takes this beam and it causes this minor bit of... Why would you mention such a minor bit of damage unless... Yeah, it's, a, it's a nice little throwback. And it's, it's quite interesting because... Um, people might remember that I said uh, a while ago when I was talking about the Talking Eds podcast um, that the third book was written by Ben Counter but may have been influenced by Dan and um, Graham McNeil. Right. Um, and we were actually sat at the Black Library Weekender and something was said about are there any books you would have chosen to have written if you could? You know, kind of one of those questions everyone says no because it wouldn't have been the book it was, blah, blah, blah. And then Dan and Graham actually looked at each other I didn't catch the first bit, but they said something about Galaxy and Flames. So I th- I think this, you know, whether there is any truth in that or not, it's it's more kind of circumstantial evidence to, to put on that. So if, <laughs> so if, particularly if Graham had something to do with the writing of that, um, even if he didn't, it's a nice touch. But yeah, it's it's a nice link between the books. Yeah, I just, I, as I said, I, I took a note of that because I was like, oh, I like that. Uh, so let's see what else. Uh, the third company with Marius, they have lost more ships than he can to do the mission. So he's just pushing hard and trying to compensate. Oh, this is where he he gets there. He was he got there on time in the first mission. He was a little bit behind, but he was well, still cranky. Right, yeah, he, was, yeah. he was just late, but he was there. You know, uh, this is the this is the mission where he just totally loses it because because he, he knows he's going to fail. Yeah, this, yeah. The first mission he was only late. Now this, here's the next. Or not the very next mission, because they they went from the, the first run to the final run. But, um, yeah, he gets too much flack, too much air uh, – his, his air support is taken down as they're flying in, and he just – he can't move. He's like, we're just going to go harder. Uh, meanwhile, I love, Julius feels like a god in that Terminator armor. Oh, yeah, he's just um, walking through. It's just striding through like a god. Yeah. And all of a sudden, when the when the when the fighting actually gets weak, he's like, "Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We need to get to Fulgrim now." And he sort of just, he just knows it, you know. And they're surrounded by Lair, and Julius comes riding in. Um, the towers seem like they're screaming. There's this musk in the air, this sort of weird scented incense burning that's messing with their heads. They describe it as a riot of color and noise. All this crap is going on. Um. Where they've damaged this coral tower is where the screaming's the loudest and where the pink musk is in its worst. Um, Fulgrim starts to wonder if they've actually been led to this place, you know? Yeah. Uh, some of his warriors are late. It's marred his perfection of his plan. They did not execute his plan properly, and the perfection has been marred. Yep. Sons of people. Oh my gosh! So, oh, the standard bearer is caught in a blast, and he dies burning. So Fulgrim catches the banner, but it's burning. Only the pole and eagle are left, and that really pisses them off. Although I like how the eagle, almost like a phoenix, is left after the burning. Yeah. Um. Julius shows up, and he's like, "You're late." You know, Solomon's missing. The lair <laughs> are acting crazy. Nobody knows where Solomon is. So the second is missing. Or Solomon this, this, hi- second. Yeah. this highlights it. Difficulty is no excuse, warned Fulgrim. Perfection must overcome difficulty. There is no excuse for failure. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. The Lairn are acting crazy. Like, they're literally, it, it seems like, to Julius and to Fulgrim, first of all, their screaming sounds more like they're screaming in pleasure, and it, they're almost throwing themselves on his, yeah, on their no swords. Defense. 
yeah, they're, they're charging forward, so they're kind of allowing themselves to be cut down. And yeah, and Julius is now Julius is fighting twice as hard because Fulgrim just told him that he has no excuse for being late. Yeah, they get to the temple and they take off their helmets and they can smell this pink gas. Julius feels lightheaded. Uh, now they get to the temple portion, and I got a description here. Hold on. As Julius entered the cavern, he felt as though a smothering blanket he had not known existed was suddenly pulled from his skull, and he clapped his hands to his ears as a cacophonous flood of sensations assaulted him with a surge of light and noise. Blazing light filled the immense space within the temple, leaping from wall to wall, and riotous noise echoed in a deafening thunder of sounds. Fantastical colors wheeled in the air as though the light were somehow caught in the humid, aromatic smoke that snaked through the chamber. So he's going on about this place. This place is just is wrong, and it's it's Very weird wrong. that he feels like, but he feels like like you know a, a, a wet blanket's been pulled off his head. He actually can he hears, you know, what I'm saying it's like it's like he's actually his senses have been freed by all this. It's also a little weird that he's standing right outside the temple and doesn't hear any of it. It's like there's some sort of a barrier, you know? Yeah, set kind of zone in which it occurs yeah uh hundreds of lair in what seems to be an orgy uh <laughs> who knows some are laying around looking like they're dying but not upset by it uh and in the center there's this block of veined black stone and there's a tall sword with a gently curved blade shoved into it and julie says this is not a place of worship but of dominance which is a nice bit of insight, and it is really kind of sick. It's like these people, it's almost like they're not there worshiping. They're almost there as sacrifices, like they're, they're being used. These, these, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they're tools, yeah. Yeah. Um, Julius tries to tell Fulgrim not to take the sword, but the sword itself seems to speak to him and tells him to shut up and let Fulgrim take him. And it actually, he shuts up. Like, he doesn't say anything. Um, yeah, doesn't doesn't fight against it. No. And then Fulgrim pulls the sword and puts the standard in the spot where the sword was, in the hole in the stone, which is all beautiful and symbolic as he takes the Slaneshi weapon and plants his symbol in the Slaneshi uh, stone. Yes. Um, I just, it's like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, it throws off colors as it seems to writhe in pain. The The banner... You know, is throwing off colors. It seems to ride. Fulgrim takes the sword, sheathes it, and says, kill them all. Uh, the Primarch of the Emperor's children admired the sword blade, a spectral glow thrown across his pale features by the dancing lights that filled the chamber. The lair still writhed on the ground, their bodies undulating obscenely as the Primarch raised the burned banner pole high and drove it into the stone he had just drawn the sword from. The eagle caught light and threw off hundreds of fractured reflections from its wings and to Julius the sight was hideous the light making the eagle appear to twist and writhe in pain Fulgrim spun the sword in its grip testing it for balance and he smiled as he cast his gaze out over the hundreds of layers sprawled around him destroy them all he says leave none alive I, I love that just how the eagle and it just I mean geez, talk, it couldn't be more true what he just saw no absolutely it's um, very symbolic um and it's a nice way to end that that book with Fulgrim planting that in there, just basically taking root in Slanesh. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean it's it's clear to us that you know it's not they're not 
worshipping just the nation. I mean, they've got their, their bull-headed statues and all that around, but it, it's obvious that they're revering the sword as well. Um, right. And that's that's power. And you've also got the fact that all the um, space marines took their helmets off because Fulgrim did before entering the temple. Right. And you wonder how that... I mean, right back at the f- in the first chapter, there's a little bit about why um, I think it's um, Dementor takes his helmet off. Um, which you see all the time on the on the tabletop. But you you wonder why would you take your helmet off? But you know, yeah, there's, Solomon. There's that's right. Solomon takes his helmet off, and they're like, "I bet you." I, oh, that's right. Because what's his name? Julius is trying to contact him, and he can't reach. Yeah. He's like, "God damn it! I bet you he took his helmet off." Yeah, <laughs> and actually, because I mean, it's one of those things that it's always kind of why would you ever take your helmet off? But there are yeah, you know, there are reasons for it. But here, they all you know a lot of them all took their helmets off when Fulgrim did before going into the temple. Um, you wonder if there was some influence there, or yeah, or it's if possible. it was just a cruel twist of fate. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? So let's take a break, and when we come back from break, we'll start with part two: the Phoenix and the Gorgon. Hey Grant, what you doing? Oh, not much. Just building some models and listening to Garage Hammer. Garage Hammer? I love that show. It's awesome. I know. And welcome back to Chapter 6 of uh, our reading through a full room. Yeah, Part 2, The Phoenix and the Gorgon. Um, I got a question. This is where we meet Ferris Manus. Indeed. Uh, did the Emperor create him with weird liquid steel arms and eyeballs? Haven't read that bit yet. What? Haven't read that bit yet. I think that bit is covered in Massacre. I forgot to do that bit of research. I have okay. to apologize. Um, I think... Don't. I'm just trying to recall. I think the the arms thing came from uh, a, an experience later on. Okay, well, because it just seems weird. Because I I was reading and first of yeah, all, I, I know nothing genetic. about Ferris Manus outside of what I've read about him in this particular book, and I still don't. I just sure. I mean, this is all I've seen of him, and I'm really interested. I'd like to see more. Um, what it, he's what a very interesting character. Yeah, and he's a perfect counterpoint and foil to Fulgrim. He's augmented himself. He augments his guys. They put in bionics when they're wounded, but he's not augmenting for augmentation's sake. It's not like the 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 guys on Mars, the Mechanicum. It's not no. like it's not like even Fulgrim, where they start to put in those you know the you know increasing their vocal abilities and stuff. The best the best counterpoint is is um, the Iron Warriors start to do it as their own form of perfection. You know, their mantra becomes flesh is weak. So they're trying to make their bodies better when they do replace, you know, hand gets cut off. Well, why, why grow a new hand? Just put a metal one on there. The metal won't fail. Flesh is weak. Okay. So that's their own, and their that's own the iron way of warriors? perfecting their body. Um, sorry, not the iron, uh, iron hands. Sorry, okay. not the iron warriors. Apologies. I get confused because I, yeah, too many people with the same darn half a name. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the iron hands. Okay. Um, so yeah, that you know they they look at as, as the, as the, as the saying is flesh is weak. So they're looking at perfecting themselves, and when they replace their body parts with 
with non-flesh. Well, let's hope they don't go too far, though, because that sounds mechanicum well, almost. It really there. Therein lies um, one of their kind of their their debates later on um, down the line. You know, how far do you go? When do you stop? Uh, how far is too far? And um, some of the short stories later on in the Heresy, in fact, very recently released for those who've read up. Um, there are a couple of short stories that actually deal with that as a specific issue um, post Ferris Manus leaving them, shall we say. Um, <laughs> kind of uh, Ferris actually is part of the, without that guidance, that question becomes even more heightened of how far should they go. I see. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into uh, let's jump into this then, because like I said, I just Manus seems to demand perfection in the way he in, in their their weaponry and all this stuff. But he, it's not it's not a sense of pride almost to him. It's like, well, why wouldn't I try to have everything be as perfect as it can be? It makes sense to do the best you can be. There's just none of that pride and narcissism that seems to go along yeah. with along with it that the emperor's children have. Um, which I think makes them nice, you know, a nice counterpoints to each other. But uh, so, chapter six, you got Captain Balhan on the Ferrum, and he's hunting for the Diasporex fleet. Now, the Diasporex were a lost group of humans that mingled with Xenos, and when they were found, the uh, you know the you know the expedition was kind enough to say, "Leave all that Xenos crap behind and come back to the Imperium, and there will be no punishment." <laughs> and uh, yep. they said, well, no, what the hell? We're happy how we are. Well, then that's it. Now you have to die. Yeah. As Ferris is um, as straight up and down as they come, as far as Primarchs are concerned. There aren't many that are as quite as <laughs> lace rod straight as he is. Rogel you know, he, he I mean, he's up there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he? Those two are. Uh, right up there. I don't know much. Like I said, you don't. I don't. I didn't get that. Honestly, I didn't get that much from Fair. I mean, he seems, you know, like straight and loyal. But they all pretty much seem. I mean, the, all of them who didn't turn traitor seem straight and loyal. Um, though no, yeah, but there's the the, the adherence to the to the law, right? Um, uh, like the kind of the um, the literal taking of the law. Um, so we see that Ferris. You know, people are scared to tell him. Like they failed at various points because it's like no, you, you, this is your job. Um, that's what you've got to do. You will be punished. Yeah. There, there, there seems to be, again, in a different way to the to the emperor's children. There's no room for failure. Right. Um, it's not. It's not because he seeks you to be perfect. It's because he. It's an expectation for you to be able to do your job. Okay. I and see that's where what we're going uh, that, with that's, this. That's okay. A, it's a different kind of way. I mean, that that's how Ferris runs his his thing. It's like no, I've set your job. That's, that's your job. Go and do it. I got it. I got it. But yeah, he's. I mean, he's there, and he knows the imperial truth. And he said, "Right, I've given you one chance. That's all you get." Him. Uh, and this is at the same time, roughly at the same time of murder and the interrex, where Horace is actually starting to think maybe we should do things a different way. Right. Oh right. So, yeah. 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 You kind of counterbalance that with maybe if Horace had had been with these guys instead and. Yeah. You don't know. It's so, just a nice little thought. Basically, now, you got this captain of the ferry, and he's chasing these, these, these ships. They've got a few ships that they've managed to isolate, and they're chasing them. And these ships are dumping cargo so they can pick up speed and get faster and get away from him. And he's like, oh, go after him. And people are like, hey, we should, you know, maybe we shouldn't be watching what we're doing. But he's so eager to get one of these ships because they can't seem to get any of these diasporex 
at all. They can't seem to catch him or do anything to him. No. So he's eager to be the first one to get it. Well, that cargo they dropped was actually holding attack ships. And that pops open, and they are in trouble. They start getting shot up. He loses, like, three of his ships in this ambush. They got none of these in return. And Ferris Manus is talking to his first captain, Centaur, and he's just livid. Um, I like how they <laughs> describe him, the silver eyes with no pupils, the metal, ha- metal hands. Uh, Centaur has robotic legs and a robotic left arm. Um. You know, all this is going on. And then uh, we, then it jumps ahead like two months later. And they're in the Anvilarium, which is Ferris Manus's sort of audience chamber. Yeah. And the Mechanicum is there. And uh, he, they describe him once again. Yeah, a ruthless leader who demanded perfection despised weaknesses. Um, he gives his hammer to Santar... Uh, and there is no chairs or ritual or formality. The exact opposite. Yeah. He's, you know. he's all about doing his job. Right. So they're on the Anvilarium, um, and they're going through this. Uh, Manus gets news of these other legions that Dorne is, uh, has been recalled to fortify Terra. Russ is continuing to move and conquer. Fulgrim's on their way to meet them. Uh, and then you get the story of Fulgrim and Ferris Manus' meeting, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Uh, they're both there. They both show up at this forge to make weapons, and well, I can make a better weapon. You know, I can make a better weapon than you. Again, you got you got two. It's like because um, they were found roughly the same time. So you imagine two young kids who've just met each other for the first time. They've both got an ego. Yep. Um, you know, and they're, yeah, there's just that little bit of pride comes out, and um, they're going to show each other that they're their best. But out of that comes this friendship. Yeah. And, Mutual uh, respect. And that's how they, and then they wind up each trying to, they're each going to make a more perfect weapon. They're going to make yes. a better weapon than the other guy. And um, they each make the, you know, one makes us this beautiful war hammer, and the other one makes this beautiful burning sword. Uh, and then they, they trade. They, they Each one is so beautiful. It's like, oh, that's they, beautiful. Yeah, they, they, go ahead. Oh, I'm trying to remember now. Did they make it for the other one? Well, it, it almost, it, you know, it, they, they didn't really make it for the other one. It was a contest to see who could make a better weapon, uh, and then they wind up trading. I think, I, where is that? Hold on. No, you're right. Yeah. They just tried to make the best weapon they could. And they both, for three months, they work on these weapons. And it's weird. It, it doesn't, this is the one part that I thought was odd. Fulger makes a giant war hammer. Yeah. Which doesn't seem like his sort of style at all. Whereas Ferris Manus makes this beautiful, perfect, you know, ba- perfectly balanced, thin, you know, uh, you know, exquisite sword. Um, the only, the only, I mean, there's two possibilities there. One is they did both make them thinking that they were going to give them to each other, or they were making them to appease the other one. I can see so, what you're saying. I mean, yeah. e- even from the basic look of it, Ferris Warhammer. You know, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't look at Fulgrim and think, yeah, I could see him with a mace. Exactly, it would have to be an elegant weapon for him. And so, yeah, I, I was kind of thinking maybe they figured that's what the other one. You know, that guy's going to make a fancy affinity. sword. I was just thinking that maybe they were both trying to outguess each other. That guy's yeah, going to make maybe. some fancy pants sword. I'm going to make the best sword ever. And he's thinking, well, a brute like that would make a warhammer. I'm going to make the best warhammer ever. 
Yeah, again, we got we got nothing there to go on. So we have nothing. I mean, it's total conjecture. Yeah, you just, can read your own into that one. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so they, they, you know, that's where you find this story, and it's it, like I said, it's a really great story. Uh, but then it cuts back, and Ferris Manor says the Emperor's children are coming because they're weak. We are weak. The Emperor's children are coming to bail us out because we have not been able to catch or hurt even one ship of this Diasporex. So he's sort of like, you guys ought to be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. That we have to, that they have, that they have. Now, he accepts their help. He accepts the fact that, listen, we didn't get the job done. They're coming to help us. And he accepts that help gratefully because it's more important that the job get done. It shows off the difference. Um, it is not weakness to ask for help from my brothers. It is weakness to de- deny that help is needed. Exactly. Th- that lack of pride. Yeah, and that's a nice end to Chapter 6 because it totally, in this first, I mean, especially with that first chapter where somebody has even talked during my performance, I'm not going to do anything. There's the first chapter, the first part. Here, dude, things have gone completely wrong. These this alien human uh, conf, you know con you know group together conglomerate. yeah conglomerate thank you for the word nice word uh, <laughs> um, they you know they're kicking our butts they're making a mockery of us they have to send help you ought to be ashamed of yourself but we'll take that help because yeah, it's more important to get the job done he's looking for the practical way to to get the job done exactly oh chapter seven starts with Ostian at the marble. He's attacking yeah. the marble. Um, and that's not like him, but he's angry. Normally he doesn't attack his his uh marble. It's it's you know, he looks at it and there's there's a it's that whole theory that there's a statue inside the marble. I'm just releasing it. I'm yeah. chipping away the extra. Um but now he's supposed to go he wanted to go see the sea. And uh, Becca Kinska screwed him over. She was like, oh, we'll see what you do, and basically got his name taken off the list and blows him a kiss and waves as she gets on. Oh, and, yeah, she's not, she's not nice. Oh, she's, such a, she's such a bitch. <laughs> she really is. And Serena is nice enough to offer to stay with him, and he tells her, no, no, you go ahead. You know you want to go. And so she goes. And he's left. Um, this is the, the first instance in the book we see um, his art being affected by his emotions. Yes, because so he's so angry. We, but it, we we just start to see it, and it's with Ostian as well, which is kind of the person at the end of the book that it doesn't have as much effect with. But it's that theme of you know it's affecting him. But he recognizes it and gets it under control. Exactly. And there's the big difference. It's, are you going to let this run rampant, or are you going to recognize? I mean. I guess a big theme that comes up in this book is knowing yourself, recognizing where you have shortcomings and accepting them. Yeah, and knowing where that line is and yeah, and pulling yourself back from it. All that, all those little constraint. Yeah. So that's going in now. Solomon wakes up in the medical bay. <laughs> they got him out of the water, but both of his arms, both of his legs, all of his ribs were broken, and his skull is cracked. So he's broken all four limbs, every one of his ribs, and he's got a cracked skull. Uh, Julius is sitting there with him, uh, explaining to him how wrong the temple felt. And this is another great little passage here. I love this part. Hold on. He says, it's unnatural. And he goes, what do you mean it's unnatural? And Julius looks around as though checking for anyone who might be listening. He said, it's hard to describe, Saul, but it felt 
it felt as though the temple itself was alive or something in it was alive. It sounds stupid, I know. And he says, how can it be alive? It's a building. I have no idea, but that's what it felt like. I don't know how else to describe it. It was horrible, but at the same time, it was magnificent. The colors, the noise, and the smells. Even though I hated it at the time, I kept thinking back to it with longing. Every one of my senses was stimulated, and I felt energized by the experience. And Solomon's like, oh, I could do with some energizing. I should try it. And Julia says, I even went back with the remembrancers. Uh, and they thought it was such a great honor that I accompanied them, but I didn't go for them. I just I had to see it again, and I don't know why. And he asked him, what, you know, what does Marius think of this? He goes, Marius never made it there. And this is where you find out Marius is beating himself up. Yeah. As soon as the fight was over, he's been back to the pride of the emperor. And they know that there's something wrong. And uh, Solomon's even like, dude, Julius, did you even talk to him? Nope. He's been on the armament decks working his company day and night so they don't fail again. He was shamed, but Fulgrim forgave him. He's like, what do you, Solomon's like, what do you mean forgave him? He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, he, and that that forgiveness is almost worse. For yeah, I forgive you for not being there and part of my perfect plan. It's like, wait a minute, it's just piling more and more on them. Yeah, and so, uh, so he cannot forgive himself, and so Solomon tells Julius, "You need to go talk to him and make him see reason." Uh, and then we get to the part where they're ready to greet Ferris Manus. They're ready to greet him. Everyone's excited. Except Marius, who's still kicking himself, doesn't deserve to be there. He's upset. I shouldn't be here. I was a failure. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and once again, the, the worst po- I mean, the worst possible reaction to failure, after we just saw at the end, where the Ferris, Manus, listen, you need to know when you ask for help. You need to know when you failed and you got to cut your losses and say, I, you know, I need, you know, the, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And uh, so he's upset. Fulgrim is there, and he's got Fireblade instead of that Lair and Sword. And Julius is glad that he's got it there and not that stupid Lair and Blade. Um, and they talk about Vespasian is there, and he's a great warrior, but also incredibly likable with a rare humility. So yeah, it's you know, slightly different from Eidolon. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, I just I think it's interesting that that humility is rare in their in their in their legion. Yeah, you know, and I I, I literally read it that way, and I'm you know I, maybe that's not how the guy when that's not how you know the guy thinking it was thinking it, and I don't mean Graham McNeil. I mean you know as as this as they're looking over at Vespasian and thinking he's got a person of rare humility. Yeah, you know, it's just well, you know, the fact that it's that humility is rare is just—I mean, it's so it's so obvious, and it happens, you know, in this. But now you find out Fulgrim gave him the name Gorgon when uh, when Manus found Sanguinius. Sanguinius, I guess, showed up on Earth after they had finished forging all their weapons, and he came with just gems and art and all this stuff he had brought from this other planet that he conquered as a gift to the emperor. <laughs> what a waste of time when there's stars to reclaim. <laughs> You're wasting your time with all this coming back here to bring gifts when we have people. And that's when Fulgrim calls him a Gorgon. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all about function for, for, for Ferris. Yeah. Um, 
And so when F- Ferris Manus arrives, everyone's in really good spirits. He introduces Julius to Gabriel Centaur. You know, they're both first captains. They'll want to get acquainted and all of that. And um, then, you know, that, it's after that first meeting, then we break up and we're going to get into Chapter 8 where they start planning. Mm, yeah, we see um, where F- Ferris a lot of the time comes across as this quite straight lace and not very personable. But in, in here, he, he does his Primark thing. Yeah, and he talks quite well, and and you know puts Judas at ease, and, and sorts captains out with each other. That's something that you couldn't really say much about Ferris in the previous writings. I'd kind of little snippets you you read about the Iron Hands, things like that. Exactly, and um, you know it's it's really sort of weird because Ferris Manus, for all of his understanding, his shortcomings, he is a bit of a hothead. I mean, he is easily led about in this in this. You know, in the, in the, at the end of this book, yeah, um, and you see it, and you see the you see the foreshadowing of it here coming up here in uh, in chapter eight. So uh, why don't we get into chapter eight? Okay, so chapter eight. Now they're going to have a plan to take out these diasporics, uh, and Ferris Manus is irritated that Fulgrim just keeps. Uh, Nope, that won't work. Nope, that won't work. Nope, nope. And <laughs> so after a few hours, Ferris Manus is like, well, if you've got any plans, tell me. And he basically says, I've figured out they haven't left because they can't leave. So they've got these fuel cells that are they're gathering up solar energy. So they've got them near the sun. Um, and so they're basically going around that. So Fulgrim says, let's go after that, and then we'll draw them out. Um, yeah, it's <clears throat> looking at this. It's this must be really hard when you've got two Primarchs who are supposed to be supreme beings, and yet one of them's got to be better in, in this one scene than the other one because <laughs> right. it, it makes it look like Ferris doesn't really have a second plan. Yeah, <laughs> and just Fulgrim swans in, and yeah, the bar is do this, and it's you know it just. I don't know how else you write it, really. Yeah, you, you've got to you've got to write it the way it's been written. But it it does come across a little bit like, oh, Ferris has been a bit dumb. Well, I'm said he had several ideas. It's just that you <laughs> doing them for what a, a couple of hours, and Fulgrim's like, no, nope, no, yeah, exactly. It's just coming out. All these other Fulgrim's just in there going, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> but so, you know, I don't know how else you do it. Yeah, so basically they're going to go after this thing, and I love when Ferris Manus is talking to. Fulgrim in Fulgrim's room. Uh, this isn't a vessel of war; it's a floating gallery. I like that. Uh, you know, Fulgrim has art from some of the best artists around. He's got pics from uh, Euphrates Keeler on yeah, his walls. Yeah, nice little link. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Soon, her name will be known throughout the expedition fleets. Is what he tells Ferris Manus about Euphrates Keeler. Won't it just? <laughs> but. Um, I like when he, he points over to these ones here aren't very good, and that's Fulgrim stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And, um, yeah, uh, what Fulgrim gets on Ferris Manus for not call, for calling Horus Horus and not the War Master. And uh, then here's where you see the first real edge of that corruption taking form. Like, you've, you know. Um, it's just all of a sudden he gets this urge, this like inner voice to just keep pushing at Ferris Manus. Um, you know, Fulgrim's surprised that he wasn't the war master. 
And then you start to see these other things popping up with him. Just like the second voice, which we all know is this, you know, spirit that's taken a part of him. Um, you know, basically going at him, just pushing him. You can see, you can really see the signs of corruption in here really, I mean, blatantly. Yeah. This is the the beginning of the, uh, the, the other kind of voice. Yeah. So then what comes up next? Oh, um, this is where they go back to the apothecary and he's aboard the Andronicus. And, and uh, Andronius, yeah. And I'm sorry, Andronius. That's right. And uh, Edelon gives him a little private place to work. Um, it's <laughs> he's offended that he's got to be on this peacekeeping mission and he's not going to let this happen again. It's like, oh, really? You know, there's no glory. There's no anything why I'm here. He tells Fabius he doesn't like what he's doing. But he's going to be the first. I don't like oh, yeah, this. He's got all the ambition. Right. If what you say is true, then I'm going to be the first person to be enhanced, and then I'll be indispensable. Um, I notice that, that F- Fabius is experimenting on dying Astartes, not quite dead Astartes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's every step he takes, it's just another step. Yeah. <laughs> beyond, is, beyond. I mean, say that they're dying just doesn't you know they're not dead quite dead. They're dying. They're still alive. He's yeah. experimenting on live space marines now, and he's already got a drug made from the layer gland and the Astartes uh, thyroid, so it'll increase their metabolism and strength, and that'll go to all the emperor's children who want it. Um, that's just oh boy. <laughs> It's never going to end in a good way, is it? <laughs> it's like they've never seen a horror or a science fiction movie themselves. They just, <laughs> it's just like every time somebody tries to do this, it it ends up poorly. But but I mean it, that's that's what's great because we can all just see it coming a mile away. Even <laughs> even even I who didn't realize what they were turning into necessarily at first and didn't realize what was going on. Um, just knew I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. <laughs> like, these things they're giving him, I don't know what they're going to turn into, but they're not going to turn into anything good. Um, oh, then we get to go back to the Remembrancers, and there's Serena. She can't mix the colors she wants, so of course she starts cutting herself to punish herself. Um, because at least she can feel the pain. Normally she doesn't feel much of anything. Um... And since she's come back from Lair, you know, she's trying to create, but she doesn't like anything she's done. Um, and just every single person that was put into that temple. She went down there. She's been corrupted now, too. Um, yeah, we see we see um, the corruption kind of take a, a gr- much quicker effect. Yeah. She accidentally, on, on she accidentally bleeds into the paint and realizes that's what she needs. She needs to paint in blood, or at least in, with some portion of it in there. Yeah, just adds a little bit of oomph to the color. Yeah. So uh, so she cuts herself more and just starts, you know, squeezing out some blood. Filling, I was like, oh, this is just... This is so... At least she's using her own blood at the moment. Oh, yeah. This is, this is, this is the mild case of... Well, this, um, this, is just, this is just she's found the outlet. Um, you know, as she goes further into it, she needs to find ways to feed what she's doing. But at the moment, she 
it's that first step. Oh yeah, that happens to work. It's yeah. just just happens that blood has the right viscosity or whatever to make that work. That that's just that's just coincidence. That's really good. <laughs> you know, you can ex- she can explain that away. Yeah, she doesn't quite. Yeah. Oh boy, that's that's going to end even worse. <sighs> and then let's see where else we've got corruption. There's Solomon sparring uh, sparring with Marius, and he's trying to get back to his full strength. And they're talking about all the new stuff that uh, Fulgrim has, uh, has approved, all the stimulants and stuff. And Solomon doesn't like the idea. Marius is cool with it. Um, but yeah, here we, here we get the echo of the first three books again. Um, mm-hmm. Fulgrim has ordered it. Mm, so? You know, Fulgrim doesn't actually order it. Fulgrim has approved no, it. Uh, approved it, sorry. So, so it's, it's got the seal of approval, but it, um, we've got Solomon sitting there saying, but does that make it right? It still yeah. sounds wrong. It's still, it's still against what I believe in. Just because Fulgrim says, yeah, that's fine, should we be doing it? Yet the others will blindly follow. Well, Fulgrim, you know, that's it. And yeah. you, again, you see, you see that. It's, it's echoed all through the first three books. Right, and then you get the rest of it going through there too. Because um, Solomon's back early, and he can tell that Kaifen or Kaifen likes being in command. Like, And he did a good job with it. So he's got to, you know, he's looking... He's thinking he's got to look at getting him his own company. Um, you know, now that he's back. But then Marius is still upset, and he's like, you didn't fail. And Marius just doesn't even want to hear it. He's going to work harder. He's going to take the stems. Fulgrim said it. We should, so that's enough of that conversation. And, and that's, yeah, that, that's where right at the end of the line, you know, we'll follow the Primarch's orders without question. No matter no what. No matter what they are, asked Solomon. Exactly, said Marius, no matter what they are. Yeah. And it's that blind obedience. He's been shamed, and now he's got, you know, I'm going to do exactly what I'm told, exactly the way I'm told, so that the Primarch will see how useful I am again. And it's just gone to blind obedience just, you know, for, I mean, for no good reason, really. Yeah. He's just, you know, I want to get back on this guy's good side, so I will do exactly as he's, you know, I will do everything I can to make him happy. And that's not going to lead anywhere good. That's chapter eight. That should be, chapter should be titled "Not Going Anywhere Good." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Setting up a lot of whole bad stuff. Yeah, and argue the, the whole thing between uh, Ferris Manus and and Fulgrim, where I mean, you get those real bits of that corruption. I mean, it really says you know he's a he's this he's that. You're going to have to kill him someday. I mean, it's just like it's laying it all down there. You get Edelon being you know uh, a dick. Yeah, yeah, and being experimented on. You got Serena bleeding into her, you know, giving her lifeblood for her art, and uh, yeah. and and Marius blindly following Fulgrim everywhere you go. Oh. <laughs> mm. <laughs> now, uh, chapter nine, I thought was actually up. Like, I mean, this 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 has got tons of important stuff rolling around in it. Chapter nine is like a big chapter. Um, Balthan is is looking for those solar correct solar collectors around that star where the where the diasporics are. Iron Father Dietrich's with him. That was his punishment. Was he has to co he has to be the co captain. Yeah. And now an Iron Father. What does that what what does that rank mean? I'm. Yeah, Iron Father, chaplain. Yeah. So it's part of the command structure without being a commander. He's a chaplain. Okay. Um, oh no no well no 
On the other hand, eschewed a traditional chaplain, yes. Yeah. So he's, he's a tech marine who serves as a chaplain. Okay. So he kind of does both roles. Okay. All right, let's see what else is going on here. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. So Iron Father Dietrich, is when he realizes that he, he understands about Balthan being upset that he's there. Um, and Balthan understands why he's there. He's got to atone for his mistakes. Not yeah. the blind insanity atonement, but even even this guy is a little bit eager, like he really wants to atone, but he has yeah. yeah, but he's not blindly doing anything to do it he's doing he's following his orders as well as he can and doing as well as he can, but it's not that blind obedience, and I guess that's the difference between a follower of Fulgrim and a follower of for Ferris Manus. but um they find those solar collectors and they signal the fleet and they're going to wait they're not going to attack. Right off the bat and signal them, they would totally blow it. So they're waiting. Now, um, while they're waiting, they go back to this, uh, back to the pride of the emperor. And there's this guy, Evander Tobias, and he's working in the archives, okay? And everybody who was down on the planet, it seems, is over in the archives. Uh, Becca Kinska is there acting like a maniac, writing all this stuff, listening to music blaring in her headphones. I mean, Julius finds Evander Tobias. Evander Tobias had once been the greatest public speaker of Terra and had trained the first Imperial iterators. His role as the primary iterator of the War Master's fleet had been assured, but the tragic onset of laryngeal cancer had paralyzed his vocal cords and led to his retirement from the School of Iterators. In his place, Evander had recommended his brightest and most able pupil, Carol Sinderman, be sent to the 63rd Expedition. So that's, uh, that's uh, you know, <laughs> these are all characters we know, you know, linked in right easily with characters we know. Mm. Uh, and he's got an air of knowledge and respect that even the Astartes realized. His bearing was regal, and Julius had a great affection for the venerable scholar. So you can already see how this is set up. And he basically tells him what happens in the temple and how it's so stimulating that now everything seems gray and lifeless, which is interesting because this is the first you know, sense you get that, you know, why these, these followers are constantly stimulating themselves because apparently without it, it's... It, Everything's bland. Yeah. Uh, and he says that lots of people have come here to learn what they can about the temple and find out stuff that they're all starting to feel that way. And uh, this doesn't ring enough bells, apparently, to people, so they just kind of move along after mentioning it. Yeah, it seems everybody who went down there is acting like a freak. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Pro- most of them probably aren't asking. They're all, like, uh, um, Bechneos. They're all, uh, they're all in their own little world. Right, but I thought he trying actually mentioned that own. many people had come there trying to learn of that scene. You know, they all feel, they all seem to be that way. So yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. that, but that's Tobias sees that, yeah. and he's just like, oh, they're interested there, and you know, uh, maybe, maybe he's he's an old man with cancer. Yep, <laughs> you know, who sits with his books all day. But yeah, there's a, an opportunity missed, maybe. So, I like I said, I just, for some reason I thought he mentioned it to Julius, but I could be wrong. So we get to Blake's philosophy. Hmm. <laughs> uh, this is just. His belief that humanity has to indulge in all things in order to evolve to a new state of harmony that would be more perfect than the original state of innocence from which he believed our race had sprung. Um, you know, people, 
let's see, his works contain a rich mythology in which he worked to encode his spiritual ideas into a model for new, unbridled age of experience and sensation. Some say he was a sensualist who depicted the struggle between indulgence of the senses and the restrictive morals of the authoritarian regime under which he lived. Others, of course, simply denounced him as a fallen priest and a libertine with delusions of grandeur. So this is the guy that he tells him to read about. This is really interesting, though, because he tells him all about this guy, and Tobias is talking about him. And then Julius is like, I can see why he's labeled a heretic. And they go into this really interesting discussion about how there is no such thing as heresy, that you have to have a a group of people who are setting up a strict set of rules in order for someone else to break them. It's basically heresy is completely subjective. Yeah, is yeah. That's it. It's this discussion of what is a heresy. If a heresy is just the act of going against the current um, system of, of, of in place, whether that's a religious system or a, a faith system or, or a, a secular system, even if you're going to have heresy in that context, then everything kind of could be heresy. Or is there no heresy at all? That, yeah. And you, can't, you can't have a little bit of heresy and no heresy elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, because he says that basically he says to him, for heresy to exist, uh, there must be an authoritative system of dogma or belief desi- designated as orthodox. And so you're saying there can never be heresy now since the emperor has shown the lie in the belief of false gods and corpse worshippers. Oh, not at all. Dogma and belief are not reliant on the predisposed belief in a godhead. They might simply be a regime or set of social values such as we're bringing to the galaxy even now. To resist or rebel against that could easily be considered heresy, I suppose. And it goes, uh, you know, it kind of goes back and forth like that until he gets a call, and it's like Aeon, who's like, um, "We got a call from the Diasporex. You need to get up here right now." Yep. Interesting way to end the scene. Pull us back into the main story and off the uh, investigative trail of. Heresy and philosophy. Um, Fulgrim is in his room, and he's pacing. So now the music is playing at ear-splitting levels. He's mad. He's mad at <laughs> Ferris Manus uh, for ruining his plans. And once again, in his, the voice in his head says that his uh, his impetuosity will be his undoing. Which I like a, a plot point, plot point, plot point, plot point. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's more. Uh, there's more building up of 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 um, Fulgrim and then tearing down of everyone else who's letting him down, who's in the way, who's yeah, and then playing on that, that yeah that repetitive issue of Ferris's um you know strong headedness exactly, and then the voice is talking to him, and he actually discusses the voice in his head. Like, yeah. it actually stops to talk about this voice in his head. And at first he thought he was going mad, that some last deceitful trick of the lair had begun to unravel his sanity. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened, actually. But, <laughs> go on, but he had discounted such a notion as preposterous for what could lay a perfect being such as a Primarch low. Once again, the inability to admit that you can even have a problem. Yeah, he's missing every every opportunity to save himself. Exactly. Because of this, I, just this bizarre principle and ideal that he lives by, which um, it's just hard to maintain, really. But he manages it. Um, so he realized that... It's all fed by that voice as well. Yeah. 
And so it's just this vicious cycle. And he realizes it's just his subconscious. But, um, oh, what is this? This is a great part he talks about here. It's just a manifestation of his subconscious. Um, and then, oh, his subconscious is breaking through society's barriers. That's my subconscious because other people don't hear it so actively and in their own ears is because they haven't advanced as far as I have. They're not as perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, let's see what else comes in here. Um, oh, they're remodeling La, La Fenice, which is where all the all the uh, artists and remembrancers hang out. They're turning it into a big place because... Uh, with all the new works being commissioned, you know, they need room for it. And I love how it's only those people who went down to Lair. Uh, he commissioned a portrait of himself from Serena, who he wasn't that fond of, but he likes her newest work a lot. Yeah. It's like, oh, boy. But I love how he, he, there's that passing thought in his head. Oh, I own all these commissions. Only the people who went down to the planet. I wonder if that has anything to do with anything. Nah. What does it matter? You know? It's there's just it's like the 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 fulgrim that isn't you know the fulgrim from before the sword got picked up is constantly talking like quietly in the background and just being shouted down by this new subconscious. Yeah, <clears throat> and he started his own work as well, which yeah. is not quite not quite getting there. Can't quite nail down what he's doing with his sculpture. Yeah, and it looks exactly like the people he's sculpting, but it's just not quite good. As fair as Mantis points out, what about these? <laughs> They're not very good. Yeah. I just picture him with a really rough, gravelly voice. I just do. What about these? They're not very good. I, I picture him and, and, and Lehman Russ having very similar voices. Obviously, Lehman Russ is going to be a little more growly, maybe a little more gravelly, but I just picture them similarly. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not, not going to start not, getting into I'm Primark gonna, voices. Yeah, no, I'm not going <laughs> to compare them because I know someone really likes Lehman Russ, and I don't want. I'll leave that. I'll leave that to uh, the guys on the uh, audios to do the voices. <laughs> oh, it's always fun to just try out a voice. Problem is, I don't have um, extra sets of lungs that are like eight times bigger than they are. Oh, well, and you know, they, they, well, that's yeah, one thing they talk about is how, how do you talk? Even a Space Marines just. Like lung capacity is so much bigger. Yeah, and the vocal cords are so much bigger. You just—it's crazy. It'd be like rumbling all the windows when they talk. <laughs> now, um, let's okay. Wrapping up chapter nine here really quick. Um, he's still sort of arguing with himself. He just kind of goes nuts here. Like he—he he thinks this thing's a, a, a weird voice, and. Um, then he's thinking Ostian. De- oh, I love this. First, he thinks that maybe Ostian Delafleur can help him with his modeling, yeah. with his with his sculptures. But then he was all of a sudden like, "Ugh, I have to talk to a human about this. Aren't I supposed to be the greatest of all? You know, we're the Primarchs. We're supposed to be the best at everything. And suddenly, he's not the best at everything. So, does he have a? a is he genetically defective? Is there something wrong with him? You know, was his whole nature a sham? Um. You know, this idea of perfection that hid a core of, an unknown core of failure and imperfection. See, it's bizarre that he's thinking, I mean, he, he's like a 14-year-old. He really is. Mm, yeah. 
I mean, it's it, there's no gray area in his life. I have to be perfect. If you're not first, you're last. It, what the yeah. hell does that even mean? Well, that's what you said to me, Daddy. I was high when I said that because it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? It, yeah, you can only think that's come from the nature of him trying to trying to achieve, yeah, um, and make up for lost time. But it's, I mean, when you start to get into these, these, you know. There's a lot of parts in this book where Fulgrim sits down and just starts basically with this weird thing in his head. It's just talking about his own nature. And he does have such a... And granted, this thing is corrupting him the whole time. It's constantly whispering yeah. to him, you know? I mean, it's just kind of like it, the One Ring was constantly whispering to Frodo. And I'm not saying that's where they but got Frodo it. Frodo was stoned, so... <laughs> there you go. But that just the whole concept of it's constantly... In your mm. ear and in your head, and you just can't get away from it. Yeah, half truths and everything else. Yeah. yeah, and and I get that part of it. Um, it just it's like he just doesn't seem to have a realistic grasp of what's going on around him anymore. I mean, it's like he's already gone, and it's still pretty early in the in the in the in the thing. It's it, it's not when he starts parading down with with you know scarification tattoos all over himself. And painted up and with, you know, crazy plaits in his hair and all that other stuff. Um, that's not when he goes off the demon. He's going off now. I mean, he's... Oh, having, yeah, he's on the path. Yeah. I mean, it's... this is, He's he's pretty far gone already. That, you know, you don't realize how much because he can still put on a veneer of being normal. But he's already... Yeah, he's already taken care of. Um, all right, so... Finally, uh, Julius gets up there and hears reports of Ferris Manus, um, and they took off. They found out where they were, and they went after him, and he's not waiting for Fulgrim. Back up, no. Anyone, even half his own fleet. Yeah, uh, and see, and this that's... He's very impetuous, isn't he? I don't know enough about him. I only know what I've read about him in this book, but, man, this seems like a huge flaw, and he keeps making the same mistake over and over again. Um, yeah, I mean, the mistake later on is based on, you know, misinformation. Um, yes, it was still his fault, and but you can understand why he landed on Isfan 5 so early. He thought he was being backed up by six other legions. Well, that was the way he wanted to jump in right away, and they said we had to wait, and they waited until they were a few yeah. hours behind. But even then, he kept pushing up the middle, and when his yeah, friends he, were like, okay, he, we need to pull back a little bit and regroup, screw that. yeah. But that one I can understand. He thought there were, you know, he thought there were four more legions landing sure. behind him to support him. That one, you know, these ones, he's he's just going now. He's maybe he's blowing confidence in his ability um, rather than pride. Well, it's, you know, I, I know what I can do. But, um, and I think that's exactly what it is. But it's also the fact that he, once he's got his mindset, once he's got the sense got of hot blood, blood, yeah, he's got yeah. hot blood. So the pride of the emperor is on its way because now they got to go fix whatever he's going to screw up because that's pretty much how they think of it but Fulgur yeah. was not on the bridge and that's really a, and it's interesting how they're they, they feel weird without Fulgrim being there because Fulgrim is, is so hands on and so mm-hmm. you got Julius there or Julius yeah is there and Solomon yeah. and Marius are there um, Solomon's like oh what are you tense and Julius just snaps at him and it's funny he snaps and everybody goes looks to see what he's snapping about and ooh, that felt good. Like you could just see the little bits of corruption that have already taken hold of them too. Mm. You know? 
Yes. It feels good to get let go. It feels good to let go of control. You know, and you just think, oh, well, it won't be long now. What won't be long now? Bloodshed. It's like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and that's not too odd for a space marine. No. But, but the way he's the, the, with, with everything. Yeah, it's, it's told, odd, yeah. but not odd enough for other people to comment on. Yeah. So then we get into Chapter 10, and there's this battle at the Coriolis Star. And, Massive uh, battle. <laughs> huge battle. And, oh, Corollis Star. And I didn't realize how big it was, I guess, the first time I read it. I knew they were going to have a space fight here, but I was just like, I mean, I had no concept of all this stuff. Um, mm. The Iron Hands have the Diasporics surrounded, and the Diasporics have this collector surrounded. They're protecting them, and the star is behind them. Yep. And um, they're having trouble getting out. They got a blockade around them, and Ferris Manus is leading a devastating attack on the Ferrum. Uh, it's or no, it's, he's not in the Ferrum, I don't think, but he's leading this attack. The Ferrum, which is really speedy, gets behind the Diasporic ships and starts disabling their engines so that they can't run anymore. Once he cripples them to running, Ferris Man, the Ferris Manus pulls up alongside it and just broadsides it with their with their weapons. Um, when there you get the uh, the Ferrum. Earning its uh, earning its honor back by running these little these little quick missions and disabling stuff for them. Yeah, and then um, even as the uh, Diasporex are taking out their own toll as well, it's yeah. not a, a one sided battle this one at all. Yeah, the uh, one of the Diasporex ships seems to take command. That was the problem. They all ran there to save them, but they they're not a unified force necessarily. No, like the uh, like the Space Marines are, but. They lose the Heart of Gold. They lose the Iron Dream. Um, the Metallus is vaporized. They shoot a big laser thing out at it. Oh, and this used to happen in Battlefleet Gothic. You'd, get, you'd roll a catastrophic um, damage table when you blew up. And on a double six, it blew up however many inch centimeters radius and everything took damage around it. And, yeah, I mean, this one took yeah. a dozen, dozen of nearby ships. Yeah, it takes a dozen nearby this is just this was really cool i really enjoyed reading this yeah and this reminded me of battlefleet gothic from what i've heard of battle because i've never played battlefleet uh, battlefleet gothic but from what i heard about actually on the independent characters when they were talking about it i'm like oh this sounds kind of like fun yeah it's a good game and uh yeah but that thing vaporizes and takes a dozen ships with it and now there's a big gaping hole in the blockade and yes. so they're gonna go for it they're gonna try to take off um, meanwhile, Fulgrim shows up on the bridge, full battle gear, full everything, takes command, uh, and Solomon gets sent out on a boarding torpedo. Um, oh, that's got to be horrible. That's yeah. not even a drop pod. You're you're basically in a giant hollow missile, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. It's like yeah, it's a missile form version of a drop pod, kind of. Yeah, they. I mean, they have various like. Um you had the boarding torpedoes and then the specific boarding craft with their metal weapons on the front that fire into the into the ship they're attacking and then the the actual prow of the thing fires through the melted hull and opens up and they just go charging out. Um, so you've got the whole flight across a massive space battle. You've got to hope you hit your target because some are miss. Um, and then when they open out as well, the defenders are know where you're coming from. So you... Yeah, they're aiming at places like hangars and stuff like that where they know they can come out safe. They're actually going to have somewhere to come out. But then you're going to have all those defenders 
who are trained to repel the borders as well. So it's just there must must be a ugh, you know <laughs> yes. you're just running straight. You know, no one else could do it other than space means really in that kind of style. It is really cool, but it's just like yeah. God. That even for a space ring, that's got to suck. I mean, you don't like other people flying you around, and you don't like going in a, down in a drop pod. <laughs> this is going to be. This is, oh poop! This is definitely got. I mean, seriously, I can't think of a worse one to go in. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, Fulgrim is, is all are war, armored up and everything, and they they could bombard them from a distance. They could just start shooting at this main ship. But Fulgrim is going in personally with Julius in the first, and he's going to take over the flagship. Just you know, just to, just got to do it with style. Yeah, I'm not just going to beat him. I'm going to take their ship personally. And Solomon will secure the perimeter, and once he does, Fulgrim and Julius will follow in, and they'll get to the flagship. They just Solomon's opinion describes this as vainglorious but thrilling. And I mm. guess that's a good way to describe it. It's like, we really don't need to do it this way, but it is exciting. Ugh. So as they're in there and they're and they're fighting, Solomon is thinking about all this stuff that he's just sick that these humans would even join with these aliens. He just doesn't get it. Whether they knew about the emperor or not. Take this man, said Solomon. The blood of old earth pours from his veins. And but for his association with aliens, we might have been allies in furthering the cause of the Great Crusade. All this killing is a terrible waste of what might have been, of the brotherhood we might have forged with these people. But there can be no equivocation in the fight for survival. And there is only right and wrong. And he chose wrongly. His commanders chose wrongly. And that's why he's dead. So you're saying it's commanders who are to blame, and that we might have been friends with this man if circumstances have been different. He says, no. Such evil can only succeed when a good men stand by and allow it to. I do not know how the diaspora came to be integrated with aliens, but if enough people had stood against the decision, it could never have happened. Their fate's their own, and I feel no remorse in killing them. All warriors who follow their leader's orders must carry the weight of it also. And then Fulgrim wants to know at that point, is the land, is the, is landing zone secure? And he's like, yep. And uh, at that point, they're ready to launch in. And a bunch of other ships go to intercept. The, his, his, he's going to fly in on his special ship. Doesn't his ship like give off like? I mean, it looks like a fe- like a flaming phoenix in flight, doesn't it? Yeah, the the prow of it's been uh, specially adapted, yeah, to have like a, a beak style thing. And, right. You know, the wings are slightly pulled back and make it look like like a, a bird of prey. Right. And as that ship is going in, everybody recognizes that as a threat, so they all go to intercept it. And he totally would have been destroyed, but the fist of iron gets in between that the other ships and him and starts firing them down, taking damage, uh, covering, basically, you know, getting in the way and covering yeah. Fulgrim from getting in. And Fulgrim is is mad because I don't need your help. I didn't, you know, I it's just, ugh. So yeah. it's great. Uh, as Fulgrim and Julius get off, though, on the, on the ship, Julius has this bloodlust going. And uh, Fulgrim gets on and says, we're here, and try to join join me in our finest hour. What he doesn't realize is that Solomon's actual landing was really close to the bridge. So he gets up to this four-way junction that have been solved, and Solomon is going to go up the middle. And they throw grenades and all this cover fire. Solomon jumps through and kills about, you know, 50 humans uh, in, in, in just seconds. 
between the grenades and the cover fire and him. He goes up the middle, wipes him out. Um, Julius is still fighting in his place, and, and uh, Lycaon is killed. And now they're they're pushing forward, and Julius is you know all revved up in his feeling. In fact, he's never felt such joy or excitement or grief, and he's almost he like you know he's all excited by this rush of emotion. Um, but like I said, Solomon landed really close to the bridge, so he goes in and takes the bridge, and he gets in there, and the Xenos captain seems to link with him telepathically and saying, we just wanted you to leave us alone. <laughs> Heard that before? Yeah, and he's like, uh, that's it. Boom, get rid of him, shoots him, gets him out. Uh, and that's Fulcrum gets there right after he does this. And him and Julius are mad. They are pissed off. And then Fulcrum just leaves without saying anything almost. He's like, what are you doing here? Oh, I took the bridge for you. And then he just leaves. Yeah, um, and, and the voice is whispering all the time, you know. You know, first Ferris Manus ruined it, and now Solomon Dementors ruined it. It's, um, you know, that's, this is the bit where we get, you know, Ferris saved us. No, he didn't save us. Um, it's becoming more overt, the sword. The, uh, the the voice is becoming a lot more overt. Um, and we see Fulgrim starting to give in. Yeah. He's starting Obviously to agree with it. Obviously, give in to it, yeah. He's agreeing with it more and more often. I mean, it's, you know, he's obviously upset for things he normally wouldn't be upset by. But, uh, yeah, because he's, he's listening to the voices. And that's the end of part two, with Fulgrim storming off angry as can be. Um, to his room. Yeah, he is. He's, he's stomping off to pout, really. Um, which is interesting because the end of part one was when he grabbed the sword and said, kill everybody. Now he gra- now he's still got the sword, except instead of uh, killing an enemy, the enemy's already dead, so now he's storming off all mad. These little groups of chapters sort of lay together in, in a weird fashion. But then we get to part three. Why don't we take a break, uh, come back with part three, Visions of Treachery. This was, this was one of the parts of the book I really liked, so I'm excited about this one. Cool. All right. Come on, for hobo guys. And we are back. All right. Uh, Visions of Treachery, part Three, treachery. I think I said that right. Uh, chapter eleven, and we are nowhere near um, the, the <laughs> this stuff with Fulgrim anymore. We are on Craft World Oathway. Yeah, almost forgot that this bit was in there. To be honest, yeah, it's been that long since I read it. Eldrad, Ultron is there, 
Um, and he's sitting there, and he's and he's flying through on craft rolls, and he starts getting these visions that a time of chaos is coming to the galaxy, as calamitous and just as momentous as the fall. And that's when he's talking about the birth of Slanesh, right? Uh, yeah, um, yes, the right. fall of the Elder Empire, and he can see it clearly. Uh, he worries he's lost his sight as it's fled him recently. Um, but it, he realized it's basically that's the warp. It's the problem they're having with the warp is blocking uh, him yes. from seeing. There's, he sees something is wrong. Uh, he astral projects into the warp and he sees the monkey. Yes, the monkey. The what they call what the elves call humans. Yeah, it's quite. And uh, I think that's born from the time when GW used to play on words quite a lot. You think? <laughs> yes. To me, I remember because being young when I started, it was never really an issue. And then it's only like it was only later on. It was like, oh, monkey, oh, <laughs> yeah, just never, never clicked because I'm just so used to reading it. Um, but yeah, but it also kind of it's it's a kind of dig as well outside of the elder view humans as being you know right at the bottom of the evolutionary step almost yeah. you know, compared to the elder. Uh, they are they are pretty much just monkeys walking around, just you know, manage to work a few more things out. Yeah, um, that, that's how the elder view them. Um, I love the whole chapter actually. I think Graham McNeil described the uh, craft world and the elder really well, um, possibly in a way that some of the old codices uh, army books didn't quite do. So they're the graceful, the element. Uh, uh, yeah, the way they move, the way they, they act, um, and yet all the time underlying that, they are very, very dangerous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's really well put in here. I think for a while, a few years ago, I mean, I haven't read the latest Eldar, but, but a few years ago, they were just all graceful and all prim and proper. And it was a little bit fantasy elf thing, but without the, the darkness. But here, it's, you know. There's a, there's a cool viciousness to them, too. I mean, when they come out and actually fight, I'm like, damn, they're scary. Like, they're, oh yeah, they're they're. No, I mean, they are nothing like the Space Marines, but they seem just as lethal. And I was like, wow, because you know, you're reading these, and it's like, what? Nothing can stand up to a Space Marine. You're like watching these, and you're like, oh boy, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Here, I love this. I want to read this. The part where he where he talks about humanity, how how the Eldar view humanity, and I know it's just his particular point of view speaking, but I can only assume <laughs> that he that he's he's not alone in his thoughts. So. Humanity, they called themselves, though Eldrad knew them as the Monkey, a brutal, short-lived race that was spreading across the heavens like a virus. From the cradle of their birth, they had conquered their solar system and then explored across the galaxy to a vast crusade that absorbed the lost fragments of their earlier empire and destroyed those that stood in their way without mercy. The sheer bellicosity and hubris of this endeavor astounded Eldrad, and he could already see the seeds of humanity's destruction lodged in their hearts. How such a primitive species could achieve so much and not be driven insane by their sheer insignificance in the grand scheme of the cosmos defied understanding. But they were possessed of such rampant self-belief that their own mortality and insignificance did not penetrate their consciousness minds, their conscious minds until it was too late. Already Eldred had seen the death of their race, the blood-soaked fields of the world named for the end of days, and the final victory of the Dark Savior. So I was like, oh, wait, what? So I mean, now what? What? What is that planet he's talking about? Uh, you know, 
I mean, is he talking about Istvan Five? Is that? I mean, or who is, knows? Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an elder singing into the future. Yeah, um, yeah they, they're called um, seers, you know, yeah. they, <laughs> and they do. They see the possible futures, and 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 all through that library, the the elder have um, have come into do strange things at certain points to change the future, to try and forge the paths. It's just a great, great introduction. He sees uh, Horus fighting on the moon before he's wounded. He also sees the emperor beneath the mountain. He sees the betrayal, and then he sees one word, war master. I I love the little bits of descriptions of that. The emperor on a throne beneath a mountain. And it's like, oh, I kind of know what that Mm. is now. (laughs) I really had no idea before. You know, so it's like the farther I get into the series, now I'm going back with the the benefit of hindsight. It's like, oh, wait, this makes sense now. (laughs) But uh, so Fulgrim's fleet comes out of the warp. And... uh, the, they're a little bit battle-scarred. The ships are beat up. They're not their perfect primrose best. But hey, that's what happens. They didn't have time to fix it up. They will later. Um, Edelon returns from murder. And everybody meets up together. And then they leave Ferris Manus and head where they were originally going, which is the Paradis Anomaly, uh, which is this weird place in space where every time ships go there to sort of uh, plot out the place, they disappear. Like, people just avoid this place. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of space. Uh, That's so correct. You go in there to map it out, to tell people it's there, and you disappear. But but Fulgrim, as soon as he heard this, said, there is no space that will be unknown for my emperor. I will chart it and prove that I can do it perfectly. So that's, you know, that's where they're heading. So um, while they're on their way, Julius has spent weeks of travel training his newest Astartes and reading Blake. And um, yeah. we see, in as he's training, he's all, he's uh, acting kind of like a junkie. Oh yeah, so he's, he's getting those short highs and then the long lows, and always looking for that next thing that's driving them. And he's got him cranked up to, you know, super lethal levels. And even when he gets cut, it's like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and he destroys, I mean, just smashes them all with his bare hands. And I mean, completely exhilarated. You know, the pain, the blood, the thrill, the excitement, all this stuff. And it once, once it's done and it all shuts down within moments. Crashes, let yeah. Down. Yeah. And uh, so then he goes to his room and he reads the book of Urizen by Blake. Didn't the Book of Urizen show up somewhere else in this series? Yeah, sorry, yeah, Cinnamon told Logan to read, yeah. I think so. Yeah, we get we get a little, you know, foreshadowing of, of how people will react um, yeah. from Blake, you know, obvious, but, but quite nice. Yeah. And that's how we wrap up the chapter, and we move into Chapter 12. Uh, okay, so there's this lodge meeting. And which is a nice way to recap, because basically, now we can fill you in on where everyone was and what they've been doing in case you didn't read the other books. Tarvitz and Lucius are back. They retell about their time on murder. Um, well, yeah. Well. Their own Eidolon's version of what happened on murder. Yeah. I mean, at first, I love how they're going with it, with an actual recap. And, you know, you got Tarvitz sort of secretly loving how Torgadon just put Eidolon right in his place. 
how Loken broke Lucius's nose and permanently marred his perfect profile. Which, you know, you're reading that at first, you don't realize how, how insane that makes him. I didn't realize, you know, oh, he broke my nose, he marred my perfect profile. I'm like, uh, not, you know, once again, second reading going, oh, jeez, really? This is not good. That's, he's not going to let that go. Who knew? Um, this is this is um, this is great. Where uh, Julius is telling how him and Fulgrim fought to the bridge, and um, Solomon looks annoyed since he got there first. But the whole story is about how Carson and Fulgrim get to the bridge. You know, this yeah. is what we were doing in our battle. And then he tells them, and they get to the bridge, and that's that's the end of the story. There's no, oh, he was there. There's no, <laughs> they just totally skipped the part that he was even there. Um, Fulgrim starts, like, go ahead. I do, got like, we get to hate Eidolon all over again. Yes, <laughs> yes, Every do. time he appears, we get to hate him for different reasons. Um, and there's no, there's no outside pressure on him. This is all his own making. Right. He, he gets to tell the story, story he wants, and the story gives him glory. He's got no moral issues about lying out of his ass. Oh, I know. It's, any, it doesn't even sound like just, exaggeration. It's just he's flat no, out just lies. And, and the Emperor's children, they just want to hear how better they are than the Blood Angels and the Sons of Horus. So they're just lapping it up and lapping it up. Um, and, then, and then we get to see uh, Solomon as you know, the temper of the Legion. This is what the Emperor's children should be. The way he reacts, you know, he's quiet when he, you know, that's okay, fair enough, whatever, you have your bit, you know. Um, and uh, we, we see Saul's reaction as well, Tarvitz. Oh, he's just so upset. But, I mean, you think about it. Uh, Tarvitz remembers murder, how they messed up really bad in the beginning. The Luna Wolves yeah. finally got there to save him. Sanguinius showed up. And to hear Edelon tell it, first of all, Edelon says they rescued the Blood Angels. And Tarvitz is like, oh, what the what? Because yeah. they've been calling it a reinforcement up until the Blood Angels were gone. He's like, yeah, I don't think Edelon would be saying that in front of the Blood Angels. No. But his story is just full of crap. They went in early to secure drop sites for the <laughs> Luna Wolves. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, they didn't want to share their glory. That's exactly why they rushed in there, and everybody knows it. And, and it's the, just, oh, it's Right great. at the end of it, Solomon just kind of like, oh, I think I had you wrong, Tarvitz. Yeah. I think there's something about you. Let's have a chat. And he sees, sees through it all. I love yeah because Tarvis is looking over and he's looking at Lucius to see what Lucius thinks. Lucius doesn't seem to care at all. <sighs> but I like with, with Vespasian a fine tale. Perhaps later we might hear of the heroism of your warriors. Yeah. And perhaps said Edelon grudgingly. But Tarvis already knew that such tales would never be heard in this company. The Lord Commander would never allow anything that might contradict his version of the events on murder. So and then there's Fulgrim. Oh, you do us proud. You've done all this. Blah 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 blah. Okay, does Fulgrim not have any idea? I mean, is is Edelon not as big of an idiot as he seems to be? Because he seems to be a bit of a buffoon. Um, he, I mean, he, he probably know beforehand. He probably knew that Eidolon had these tendencies and, and just kind of made um, a case for it. But now, you know, who knows what's going through Fulgrim's mind? Um, because you just wonder, it's like, wow, do you, do you, are you really this clueless as to, as to who, who this guy is? Because everybody else seems to know it. So, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's just me. But so, they're, you know, they're all together, they're sharing stories, they're getting near 
and uh, they're getting having a little victory wine before they have the plans of battle. Naturally. Uh, but it's not just the victory wine. It is a huge feast, yeah. and Tarvitz is upset by this. He actually calls it hubris. He's, he's bothered by the hubris. Uh, Lucius comes to talk to him, um, and he doesn't care about the spin Edelon put on the story. Um, in fact... He gets mad uh, when they're talking back and forth. He doesn't worry about this or that, and he says something about Loken beating him in the in the chain, in the you know the, the the sparring match. And oh, Lucius is just enraged that he says that Loken beat him. He starts calling Loken a cheater. The Luna Wolves are baseborn curs. Uh, I mean, just live it and, and basically completely live it until Solomon comes by. And yeah. Solomon wants to know what Lucius. Uh, or what what Saul Tarvitz thought of the version of of murder, and uh, dude Lucius kind of gets out of hand here a little bit. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. It just starts he, mouthing he, off. He steps on a couple of toes. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, um, yeah. You and I both know Edelon is a blowhard. Lord Commander Edelon is your superior officer. You would do well to remember that. I know the chain of command, and as ranking captain, I am your superior officer. You do well to remember that. I mean, just I mean, then he, uh, then Lucius, uh, were you calling me a liar? Yeah, I suppose um, Eidolon stood up for Lucius, though. He wanted to give Lucius credit on murder. <laughs> so Lu- Lucius is looking at his own promotion, isn't he? That's that's all Lucius cares about. Yeah, yeah. So he's just backing him up, no matter what. S- similar mold to Eidolon, really. Right. I thought you had the makings of a great officer and a fine warrior, but I see I was wrong. You're nothing but a lick spittle and a sycophant who's failed to grasp the difference between perfection and superiority. It's like, oh, yeah. and that's in there. You know what? You just summed up the entire problem with your whole legion. Yes. And that's what it comes down to. And Solomon's the only one who realizes it at this point. I mean, he used to be like them to some degree, but he's the only one now. It's just great to see him shift over like this and start to realize, hey, there's something wrong. Um, I mean, it's it's a device that's been tried and tested in the series. You have two or three friends. You got a couple of first captains. Two go one place. One goes another place. They get corrupted. Yeah. The other one doesn't. And now he's sitting here going, "Oh my God, what is going on here?" Um, and it works because the corruption happens within the legions, and it's not pure. I mean, I think we were talking about that um, during a Galaxy in Flames when there were. World eaters, you know, fighting on the uh, fighting on the uh, the the loyalist side, and I just like I just keep reading. Oh, the world eaters are here and they're saving the day. And I'm like, wait a minute, they're the bad guys, you know. And yeah. you, you tend to forget that it's it, it, at this point it wasn't all of them. In fact, you know, there were a lot that weren't. So I just sort of I don't know. I always find that interesting when I'm reading it. But then they get down to, uh, let's see, where do they get to? 28-4. Yeah, they get down to 28-4. And it seems like there's ruins from this long-gone civilization. Uh, but otherwise, there's nothing there. And yeah. um, it's funny. Uh, oh, yeah, Marius scolds Demeter for taking off his helmet before Fulgrim takes his helmet off. And he's like, what are you, what are you talking about, you know? Uh, he just wants to smell the smell the nature, and he actually stops and has this weird moment where he's just like, "I wish you could just leave this place alone," which I think is a really weird. 
reaction. I'm almost wondering if there's some sort of weird influence on him. But he no, looks no, it around just, and... It, it looks perfect. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're looking at it and it's... New, it's the newfound kind of this is perfect. You know, anything we do to it's gonna gonna upset that. Um, and this would have been, yeah, we know that this is an, an Eldar planet. Yeah, um, I didn't realize so that they, at first. They probably they probably helped cultivate it um, yeah. to look that way. You know, the, the way the Eldar work is with nature rather than against it. Right. So you know, they probably helped cultivate it into this perfect place. So there's not much. That, that could be dumb right and he just kind of wishes they could leave it alone before the Imperium comes in and just starts basically you know raping it for, for resources mm. and uh, and then they're going to go check the ruins and so the rest of chapter 12 pops back up onto the pride of the Emperor at Lefenis. Uh yes. it's become gaudy uh, by Ostian standards. And there's tons of art commissioned, but nobody's commissioned him. No. Uh, he realized he hasn't seen Serena at, in like a month. Mm. You've got um, the first kind of... You've got... Uh, he meets up with Leopold, um, who kind of says, you know, to him, I thought you would have done something about this, you know. It's only the guys who've gone down to to Leia who can... Um, who've worked on it. Um and Austin's like, no, I'm just better off out of it. I just don't want to know. Um, yeah, yep. it's almost pornographic. And then the other guy's like, yeah, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> and that's a guy who's had no taint on him. He's, he can see something he wants in that. Yeah, but, exactly. but he's quite prepared to put up with the rest of it just for that one little bit. That's true. So, again, you find another, your one another, weakness. You only need one of those. Yeah. You don't have to have every vice. That's another opportunity to speak up, gone, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, Lucius is there bragging to all the remembrancers, and he's sitting there going, ugh, you know, even Ostian's like, really, you're going to, you need the tension that bad, you're going to sit and brag to the humans about how, what a badass space marine you are? Um, it's just, it's just really weird, it's just, it's all, it's such a little bizarre little scene, because really, seriously, think about it, you know, how much they look, uh, so many of them look on disdain with the remembrancers, and he's there, it's like, Oh wow, they're paying attention to me and looking at me like I'm the god wants, here. He wants stories about him. Yeah. That's what it is. He wants he wants the tale of Lucius to be told. Yeah. And he's right down there giving it to them first. That's the way that's yep. the way to get it done. Um This is a great little flashback too when Fulgrim comes to Ostian's studio and he wants to know why his sculpture what his sculpture lacks. And then oh this is this is such a great scene. When Ostian tells him it's not about perfection, it's about passion. And Fulgrim doesn't get it. He's like, well, what do you, wait, what do you mean? It's not about perfection. Everything's about perfection. He's like, no, it's about having a passion for it. It's having a feeling. And uh, it's great. It's right here on 252. You can work with all the technical perfection in the galaxy, but if there's no passion, it's a wasted effort. There is such a thing as perfection, snapped Fulgrim, and our purpose for living is to find that perfection and show it forth. Everything that limits us, we have to put aside. Ostian shook his head, too caught up in his words to notice the Primarch's growing anger. No, my lord, for the artist who aims at perfection in everything achieves it in nothing. It's the essence of being human that one does not seek perfection. And what of your own work, asked Fulgrim, do you not seek perfection in it? People throw away what they could have by insisting on perfection, which they cannot have. 
and looking for it where they'll never find it. Where I'd await perfection, my work would never be finished. And Fulgrim's like, yeah, you're the expert. And all of a sudden he realizes how he's pissed off. And he tries <laughs> to fix it. Like, once again, this guy is socially inept. He doesn't get oh, it. Completely, yeah. He's knocked like, away with marble all day, isn't he? Yeah. And he's just like, no, 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 this is how it is. I know what I'm talking about. And it just doesn't care. Once again, it doesn't care who, you know, it's, it's that whole thing, like, even when he was rude to Beck Wakinska, not saying she doesn't deserve it, but he, like, doesn't quite get how rude he's being to people till afterwards. Well, in this one, I didn't think he was rude at all. Well, I mean, he was I mean, just, just, I mean, he was blunt. Yeah. Yeah. Disagreeing. The problem with was him he, and, he, he wasn't saying what Fulgrim wanted to hear. Fulgrim really wanted an down. answer, and that answer could never come. Yeah, I mean, and then he tells him, uh, it's no matter. I'm glad I've talked to you. I'll never put chisel to marble again. I'm clearly wasting my time. He's like, that's not what I meant. I thank you for your time. I will leave you to continue your imperfect work. It's like, oh, he's really angry. It's just like all of them leave, and it's like, ugh. And then, uh, and that's when uh, Lucius comes up to him and asks, uh, hey, do you know Serena? And he says, yeah. He's like, I want you to take me to her. What for? Oh, I want to commission one, a painting of me, of course. If, if this is the <laughs> artist who's painting Fulgrim, she should definitely also be painting Lucius. Absolutely. Beautiful end of the chapter. <laughs> Plugging along here. Chapter 13. Hey, we're halfway done with the book. And it's mm. only been like three and a half hours. This is going to be crazy. But there's so much going on. And, I mean, it just – and it, this, these, these little symbols keep cropping up and keep rolling over. I mean, how many of these things are we talking about? It's kind of fantastic. I'm really enjoying this book much more the second time, even though it was really kind of yucky still. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 13. Uh, Fabius is about to perf- Fabius is about to perform surgery on Edelon. And Edelizen realizes there's Zeno's DNA in this implant and says, oh, no. no. And Fabius looks at him and says, uh, too bad. <laughs> he's like, you're under here, and this is what you're doing, and I'll just add a little more knockout juice to this mix here to your IV if you want to f- struggle and fight. And Edelon's like, I will kill you. He's like, ah, I don't think so. And just puts him under. I was like, oh, man. Yeah, we got. I mean, Eilon didn't trust him beforehand. Oh. <laughs> Fabius hasn't told him anything he's doing. Um, you've got, yeah, the, the Legion's fighting against itself even there. Um, and all the while, we know Fabius knows what he's doing is going to be considered wrong, but he's just going to do it anyway. Yeah, Fine. put it in there. And then, um, now they're down there back on that planet inspecting the, the ruins. Uh, it's Fulgrim, Julius, and the other guys. And Fulgrim and Julius are crying because of how beautiful the planet is. And they're going to leave the planet alone. And yep. and Demeter's like, um, this is the Emperor's planet, and this needs to be garrisoned. And every, I mean, if we're actually claiming this planet for the Imperium, we have procedures to follow. And this is Demeter who said, I wish we could leave it alone. But he realizes wishing I can leave it alone is not necessarily reason enough to leave it alone. And uh, Fulgrim's like, oh, no, it's too beautiful. We have to leave it. Totally willing to throw the emperor's orders right out the window. Um, Saul Tarvitz is agreeing with, with, with Solomon, which is like, oh, you know, he's right. We got we to gotta do what we got to do. This is where Julius jumps in. 
and says, it doesn't matter what the rules are, Fulgrim has spoken. And that's yeah. the chain of command. We're done. We've got, uh, yeah, Fulgrim is choosing his own way now of interpreting the imperial truth. Exactly. You know, the thing about this whole, you don't disobey. Solomon couldn't believe how easily they were going to go, go along with what was tantamount to disobeying the words of the emperor. And I mean, that's what they were doing. And they did five more. They met five more worlds after yep. 28.4. All the same. All of them, well, we're just leaving them. We're not touching them. And he's just, he doesn't get it. He's, he's furious that they're not following the rules. And I love it's how, well, Fulgrim has spoken, so we follow his orders. Well, the emperor has spoken. And if you're sitting here saying this is the chain of command, then where does the emperor's orders not fit in to Trump Fulgrim's orders? But there's just a lot of this weird double standard that goes on in their group. You know, there's a lot of selective, you know, chain of command going on, I guess you'd call it. But the thing that Demeter keeps asking himself is, why are these planets unoccupied? They're perfect. Why are these perfect planets unoccupied? Um, He starts thinking, oh, maybe these planets are being made ready. You know, like someone's preparing them, which I'm not certain where he would jump to that conclusion. You know, there's no terraforming equipment. There's nothing there to indicate. I just, it seemed like a bit of a jump where he just kind of goes, oh, maybe these planets are being made ready for someone. Well, it's one of those things. It's like um, if you look at uh, a nice area of flowers, a a wild area, and then you look at a cultured garden, I suppose. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. If this planet's actually being looked after, everything kind of looks, you know, just... It's too perfect. Why are they empty? Too perfect, yeah. Yeah, their people are coming. Okay, I get that. So maybe, maybe it's like that. Yeah, or just somebody's got to be taking care of it because it wouldn't be that way on its own. So there's got to be something going on. Um, so now Solomon notices that he keeps seeing Julius less and less. And Marius has gotten himself back in Fulgrim's good graces, or he must have because it keeps being one and three that keep going to the new planets. Yeah. And the second keeps getting left behind, and he can't figure out why. Um. <laughs> he says he keeps every time he sees Saul Tarvitz, he start, keeps really seeing this, the you know, this potential greatness in him. Yeah, and he growing keeps, and growing. Keeps sending messages to e- to uh, to Edelon about it, <laughs> and uh, or to Edelon, I mean, and he could, oh, he hasn't responded to any of them. What a surprise! No, and it purposely ignoring them. Well, yeah, holding Tarvitz back. Yeah, because he's still pissed off about the stuff that happened back on murder. And that's basically all that is, his pettiness mm. about murder. Um, but it's funny because then uh, Solomon goes to talk to Vespasian. And they both believe that the legions become decadent and arrogant. And they can trace it right to, after, right after the battle at Laird. Temple, yeah. Yeah, and Demeter, or I'm Solomon, is the one who realizes there's something wrong at that temple. And that, and, and, and he also realized that La Fenice is turning into a replica of it. Uh, and he asked Vespasian to go and talk to Fulgrim. you got to please go talk to him about this because there's something seriously wrong. And then, after he agrees to talk to Fulgrim, we get our first. <laughs> this is. Uh, it's lovely. Yeah, Serena goes down to the bar. 
and uh, she is struggling with her painting. Um, she used her blood, her tears, her waste material to to enhance her art, but that's not enough anymore. So she's used all the bodily functions and fluids, fluids that, that she, she can. can think of. Yeah. Uh, so she goes down and finds that loser poet Leopold, the one that was talking to Ostian earlier. Yeah. And uh, she seduces him to her room and basically has sex with him uh, to get yes. some other fluids. And she's disgusted <laughs> with what she's done, but even that's good. Like, like her feelings of disgust with herself are feelings, are different emotions. And so she's feeling this, you know, this sort of sensory input is good. So she actually kills him while she's having sex with him. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that final point. Yeah. Say. She cuts his throat and then stabs him repeatedly. Um, and she decides to use all of his different fluids to, to, uh, to, to, you know, finish her her per, her perfect creation. And I was just like, oh, that's so, it's so nasty. Yeah, you can. It's it's a horrible kind of thing to, to kind of think about. I suppose she's she's probably gone down each step, kind of one at a time, delving hor- into this horrible, horrible place, and then yeah. taking it a, a step further to take someone else's life. Um, but this is what. Slanesh is Slanesh is the, the 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 pursuit of excess. So you know she's done blood, and that blood, much yeah, much like drugs, that blood's not satisfying anymore. So she has to find something else, and then has to find something else. Yeah. And it will always push and push and push. You have to keep and, pushing and, it, yeah, yeah. And no matter what what um, arena that is, and at the moment for Serena, it's obviously in in this artistic grim. Manner, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still icky. About thirty days into the mission, they're flying around, and all of a sudden, there's a giant ship there, or they they can't tell the the real size. Yeah, but it's it's pretty big, and uh, they get a message comes over the Vox, in speaking in perfect Imperial Gothic. My name is Eldred Ulthran, said the voice. In the name of the Craft World Ulthway, I bid you welcome. It's like, ooh, yay. So now they get to meet they get to meet the Eldar in uh, chapter fourteen. And uh this was interesting. It was as they sort of they sort of uh you know everyone's sort of you know, soft shoeing around each other. They're finally meeting down yeah. on the planet with a delegation from the Eldar. Um It's quite quite an interesting um Fulgrim kind of makes a lucid decision here to talk to them. Yeah, it's um, you know he's he's in a lucid moment and and he's not looking at them as the not. He's like, uh, well, there might be a reason here. Let's, let's yeah. have a little look at what's going on. Don't yeah. have to just go fighting. Right. It's funny because Marius listened. They don't look like much, and Solomon's like, ooh, yeah, you never fought him then. Yeah. Um. In fact, Solomon was the most vocal. Just go out, date, go after them. As soon as they contacted them, we've had dealings with these people before. Kill them, and and it it's funny how Solomon, the guy who's the the one that we we like, is the one who's most vocal about doing these these certain things that we might 
we might object to, you know, just, hey, go war on them. No, it's like, oh, you don't have to war on them. But that's it's actually the emperor's word. Exactly. That's how they've been taught, you know, and it's mm. like, wow, that's there's the voice of reason. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that's what it is. So he says, now, Fulgrim is wants to meet and to talk. Of course, Julius says, you know, whatever Fulgrim wants to, whatever Fulgrim wants to do, that's what Julius is going to do. So. You know, but Solomon's like, you know, we all fought. The, we both fought against the Eldar. You know what they're like. What do you mean we should try and talk to them? <laughs> but that's basically what's going on. So who goes down? It's uh, Fulgrim, Vespasian, Edelon, uh Solomon, Julian, Marius, Saltarvitz, and Lucius. So you get the first three captains, Saltarvitz, Lucius, and then the other guys. Um. And Eldred is talking to a Wraith Lord, and that he hopes Fulgrim is the one he can talk to to bring a warning to the Emperor. Uh, but he can't tell because their fate is unclear, and uh, it's he can't uh, he can't really see what's going on uh, clearly. And he admits that. Yeah, he, know, uh, he knows that um, the, there's going to be the Great War between you know, the Civil War is going to occur, um, but not. Exactly sure on the details. It's all a bit fuzzy. Yeah. Him. And I like the part how Elder Ed actually, because I don't know for sure, but I believe that whatever dark forces his emperor employed in the creation of these Primarchs renders many of them as little more than specters in the warp. I cannot read this one mm-hmm. nor sense anything of his future. And of course, the <laughs> he is Monkey. He has no future but war and death. He's talking to that giant. Uh, the, the Wraith Lord. Yeah, yeah the Wraith Lord. Yeah, that's what he says. Uh, I see a time in the grim darkness of the far future when our failure to act will be our undoing. And that's what he says to the Wraith Lord. That's what Eldred said. He goes, I hope you're right, and this is not simply arrogance. And he kind of looks up and says, I hope so, too. You know, so it's... Nobody's quite certain about this meeting, how it's going to work or how it's going to come out. Even Eldred is a bit nervous about it. Um, and Fulgrim looks a little bit ridiculously, doesn't he? He's all done up. Super, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he's he started to put his makeup on and yeah. and um, overdo his armor and everything. Yeah. So he's going in the overdressed look, and um, it's funny. You get this the, the first they start talking to each other, and nobody wants to actually say anything. They don't want to give anything away, so they're just no, sort it's of very cagey. Yeah. When you deal with me, you deal with Ulthwan. He's talking about leaders and and stuff like that. Uh, Eldred invites them to eat, and he's got all this stuff out there, meat and fruit and cheeses, and he's only eating fruit. And Solomon and Eidolon just refuse to eat. The one time Solomon agrees with Eidolon, he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not eating this stuff either. You know, uh, Probably for different reasons. You know, Eidolon's good. I'm too good to eat alien food. <laughs> and Solomon's like, I don't trust these guys at all. Uh, and then he, uh, and Solomon actually says to uh, Eldred, well, you don't eat meat? And he's like, nope. And um, he just he's, he doesn't like what's going on. He feels like he's being watched. He feels like he's being shadowed. Uh, he says you, you probably and Eldred says you we were shadowing you. We were curious to see why you were going to each world and leaving it untouched. And what are they yours? And he goes, yeah. If you they are ours, you, if you try to con- you know you try to conquer every. Oh, that's right because you leave them untouched. He goes, well, they're ours. 
What do you mean they're yours? You know, you go through and you conquer everything. Like, it's your manifest destiny. Mm. Uh, so it's this kind of going back and forth now. He just, Solomon actually yeah. just, just gets, gets, you know, manages to cut to the heart of the matter that nobody else seems to be able to. And it's, just, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very tense all the way through. There's not a lot really given away. There's a few little, you know, talking about the, the histories of the races, but there's nothing... You know, it's, it's nice little background fluff text for like a page or so, and then till you get to the real, you know, when they say what's what's the real issue, and it's like, well, we've got a warning for you. Yeah, and he says you won't like it. <laughs> I <laughs> promise to be objective. Great, okay, and um, and of course he gets outraged when Eldred yeah. warns him. I promise to be objective. You're going to be betrayed. I'll kill you for saying that. It's like, oh, really? Yeah, so much for so much for control. Well, yeah, Dawn did the same. Yeah, um, so we get. That's true. Actually, Dawn did do the same, didn't he? Yeah. Um, uh, the the difference being, this is a warning of something to happen, um, and so he takes it as a kind of a threat or a personal affront from the from the alien. Um, yeah. And 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 his is the uh, it's yeah, it's not a space marine saying he will betray you it's it's an alien saying it right at the end which you can't trust the aliens oh, no. so it has a, a very different effect in the long run <laughs> so um we flip over to chapter 15 we'll go back to ostian and serena oh that's right we forgot to ostian and serena yeah. okay so back to ostian okay ostian is knocking on her door now this is great he's knocking on her her with the, the you know the the whatever they call it i forget um the like you know yeah. the blinds or whatever, yeah. and he says he's sure. going to give her five more minutes. He's been knocking for like half an hour, yeah. and I'm thinking, really, you're going to give her five? I mean, you each have a studio. How? I mean, you know, she's either not there or she's not answering the door. I'm going to give her five more minutes. I was just like, oh come on, and not come on that nobody would do it, but just come on. This guy's being pretty. This is pathetic. He's in love. I guess so. And you can hear her in there. Yeah, no, she's, so he keeps uh, knocking on the door. I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her five more minutes. Okay, but she actually does come to the. And she looks out and she looks homeless, and she stinks. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, yeah. it smells like something died in here." He tells her, you know. <laughs> he goes to check the barrel. She tells him not to open it. Says it's engraving acid. She's got one hand in her cloak. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, just just ready, just in case. Yeah, I mean, she's and not even just in case. I mean, she's she's ready to kill this guy. She doesn't want yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if he if he figures out too much, and he's trying to help her, but it's just it's it's crazy. And he even says, "He goes, you know, I I'm way messier than this, and you used to always complain how messy I got." And he goes, "And I'm not I'm not nearly like this." He goes, "You've always had everything in its right spot. What is with this?" I mean, this is insane how it looks here. And she gets mad, and then she actually says to him, "It comes easy for you." And I find this interesting is that's the thing that sets him off. Yeah. All the stuff in this chapter that goes on and what sets him what what sets him off is when she says it comes easy to you. And and he he just kinda goes off on her. In fact, where is it? Uh What are you talking about, Serena? I don't know what's the matter with you, but I want you to know that I'm here for you. Yeah. He start he starts off quite quite good but it, yeah it goes down to uh, 
Is that what you think? You think it's easy for me? Let me tell you this. Inspiration comes of working every day. People think my talent rises each morning rested and refreshed like the sun, but what they don't appreciate is that like everything else, it waxes and wanes. So yeah, I've seen that. I've seen um, people react like that at, um, at Q and A's and things. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, in fact, last one I read about was, uh, was a soccer player, Thierry Henry. You know, they used to say that he had one move that was just, and everyone would say it was effortless. And he would say, yeah, it's effortless, effortless because I trained every day for however many years doing that one thing. Right. That's why it looks effortless. It's not effortless. Yeah. Oh, and there's a great part here because, and you get to see just, uh, just a crack behind Ostian's, you know, sort of his, his, this whole, his quiet, you know, that quiet, humble nature. It always seems so easy for those without talent to look on those who have it and say that it's easy for us, but it isn't. I work every day to be as good as I am, and it annoys the hell out of me when mediocre people assume an air of knowing better than I do what makes good art. Appreciation of others' work is a wonderful thing, Serena. It makes what is excellent in others belong to you as well. I was like, damn, he just let her have it with both barrels. And it's, yeah. it's not that much different than what people like Belikinska say when they're doing their stuff. Except they're not sitting there saying you ought to worship me. He's but he's turning around and saying it sort of from a different angle. Yeah, and it's yeah, I, mean, you know, it, I work damn hard for up. this. I am good at what I do, and it makes me sick when people who are, don't have the talent that I have try to tell me how easy it is for me. It's like oh, yeah. you know, and you, you're gonna you mediocre people are gonna tell me what makes good art. You know, so he may be humble and quiet, and he loves to create a good piece, and it seems like he's really in it for the art sake. But damn it, I'm sick of you people who don't know about art telling me what's good art. <laughs> I um, I really like this little piece actually. Yeah. Um, you got you know Serena's jealousy, her lack of belief, and then she gets to that point where she's starting to break down, and she reaches out, and it's just too late. She's just turned Ostian off. Yeah. Onto his rant, and again, that was that was the point to save Serena. That was her, like, her final point. But she'd broken it. She'd just missed it. And that was it. Ostian gone. Yep. And she's Too begging late. him to come back. I need your help. I need your help. And he's just, no. I'm, and he I'm just needs done. to cool down. But it's it's just that timing's just, just wrong. Everything that can go wrong in here seems to. Oh. So now, chapter 15, wrapping up. Fulgrim, uh, we're back there with Fulgrim. And he just tells Elder, you're a liar. And Slanesh is screaming in his head, don't believe him, don't believe lies, him. Lies, 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 I mean, just talk about just buffeting him with the same. Yeah. It's, it's not even a subliminal message at this point. It's screaming yeah. in his head. But it's also if someone is shouting that thing in your head, it's literally going to block out the sound from others. And so it's just it's just filling up his head. Um, Eldrad realizes the monkey don't know what chaos is. No, and, much like the uh, Interex's reaction. Yeah, he's shocked. The Interex at least laughed. They're like, oh my God, this is great. You don't even know. You, you're not, not only aren't you corrupted by it, you don't even know about it. That's why. Yeah. That explains a lot. He's more terrified. He's like, you're going and running through all of this? Yeah. And you don't even know what it is? You know? Yeah. Like, you're swimming in gasoline. Do you realize that? I mean... You we got thought no you were just reckless, but God yeah. bless America. You don't even know it's dangerous. Oh, 
So he wants Fulgrim to listen, but Fulgrim pulls the sword out, and Eldred sees it and knows Horace, exactly what it yeah. is. Even before that, he's like, Horace, Horace is going to fall to these powers. Horace is becoming corrupted. And Fulgrim's sitting there going, no, 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 we would never, 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 never. Completely unaware of his own fall. Yeah. As it's happening. And then, yeah, and then the sword's drawn and... They're corrupted. Uh, Kill them all. And he screams. The, the dark prince thirsts. Yeah, that's just it's. Ugh, it gets a little I mean, a little crazy. For those who don't know, we haven't talked about. Um, Slanesh was born of the Eldar race um, back when they ruled the galaxy, uh, giving in to their own excesses to the point where a, a god was born out of the the stuff of chaos, um, which led to uh, the Eldar. Well, basically fed on their souls and they ended up splitting up and the Dark Elder went their way and the other Elder go their way and try to keep their souls in these spirit stones that they have on them, whereas the Dark Elder just try not to die. Yeah. Ever, ever. Ever, so, exactly. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this is this is talking about ancient enmity, the, the, the Dark the, uh, Slanesh is their, yeah. their bane. But that, that sword is out there and it's right there and so... He pulls it out, and he's filled with this power, rippling purple energy, and he goes after Eldred, and Eldred teleports away from him. And Fulgrim turns around and takes apart one of the, one of the tanks uh, and, yeah. and then goes after a Wraith Lord. He just tears up a tank and goes after the Wraith Lord. Um, and boy, what a battle that is. He takes a punch dead in the chest that cracks his armor from this thing now the Wraith Lord which I mean that's just is that is that, that really giant ass no model no that's that, just a Wraith Lord's just a bit taller than a Dreadnought um, okay. but slimmer yeah it's the one in the game that's on about a 40 mil base 50 okay. mil base 50 okay. mil 50 yeah okay Turn so it's, it's a 40 on there it's not that that new monstrosity no that's a Wraith Knight okay mm. So he takes the ship apart goes out Wraith Lord punches him in the chest cracks his armor and he loves it the pain makes him like it gives him energy. He just starts getting nuts. He seems almost feral here. Yeah, new experience for him. Yeah, uh, and the swords are are you know the 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 wraith lord and Fulgrim are are sword fighting, and as their swords are pressing together, as they're sort of locked, the blades are locked against each other. Uh, the purple stone at the in the pommel of the Laren's sword starts to glow, and the wraith lord's short sword just blows up. Yeah. And uh, then Fulgrim cuts him down at the knees and jumps him and just keeps punching him in the face until he smashes through the helmet and keeps punching him in the face. Um, and while, while the sword's asking him to destroy uh, what lies within his head, he wants the soul. Yeah. Soul to eat, absorb the soul of the... Exactly. And uh, it's, it's trying to get him off, swinging the sword at him, and he just... Fulgrim just kind of backhandedly cuts his, cuts his hand off with the sword. And then he finds that stone and he crushes it. And that thing is dead and gone. And then he turns around and looks at the, the tank that's left. He's like, all right, time to go. Yeah. I'm going after you guys now. Man, it's just it's crazy. Uh, I mean, it's such, it's such a violent battle. Um, yeah. And uh, Eldred realizes what's happening. And he, and he realizes that Fulgrim doesn't know what's going on. Like he's been, he doesn't even realize he's been corrupted at this point. No. He has no clue what's going on, and he's like, "Oh my god!" I mean, this is is that is that worse? I mean, if you're Eldred, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't presume to know the mind of an Eldar, but if that's El, if you're Eldred, is that worse? 
wow, he's corrupt. He, you know, I mean, willingly I I, going along with evil is one thing, but seeing, oh my God, he's carrying that much evil stuff around, has no idea it's gotten through to him yet. I think Eldred's just knows that once Slanesh has got its barbs into him, um, and that's bad enough, and that's reason enough for Fulgrim to die there and then. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the fact that he doesn't even know it, it's like, doesn't that make him more dangerous? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, Cause it's easy for him to not, if you don't know you're doing stuff that's evil and corrupt, uh, it's, it, you know, it's... He's not fighting it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but then, because if he hasn't willingly gone along with it, there's a chance that he might see what he's doing. But either way, Eldrad's not going to take a chance, which is why he goes through the action of um, summoning the Avatar of Cain. Yeah, and that's where he calls the uh, he calls his Eldar to war. He's like, it's time for war. And they're like, yay. And they're going to start coming down to the planet. Now, all the Phoenix Guard are dead, but all the all the named characters, I guess you would say, have survived. Mm, yeah. Um, and Vespasian's like, we got to leave. Julius says, no, no, we got to destroy that tank. There's, a, there's something else left to smash. It's <laughs> like, I mean, oh, jeez. Uh and then Solomon's like, no, no, we need to go before reinforcements come back. And Lucius is just wants to fight. And Fulgrim sees that and smiles. But the teleport light starts again. Yeah. He's done it again. Lucius has done it again. He's picked up the blade of a howling banshee. Yeah. Um, and they're like, uh, you, didn't you learn your lesson on murder? You're not supposed to pick up alien weapons. Yeah. Um, but it says something for the, the, the ability of the Eldar because like, Lucius has got marks on his armor. From the elder, yeah. Um, so it shows you how damaging, you know, how how skilled they are. Um, but yeah, it's th- those those most of those captains can't make the logical decision of retreating. Um, even yeah. Fulgrim struggles to see through the well. And the Fulgrim's, fuzz. Yeah, Fulgrim's having trouble in general because Vespasian's like he's calling Stormbird one and saying. You know, get ready to go. And Fulgrim sounds almost like he's asleep. He's like, what, we're going to go? Go where? Like, like his head is yeah. somewhere else. Obviously, there's something else going on in his mind. Um, and the Eldar start coming out of this, this uh, you know, this, this warpway portal. And Fulgrim's like shaking his head like he's clearing his, his head. And he's like, okay, we, we need to leave. So they head towards the Stormbird and it explodes. And so now they're stuck fighting anyway. Yeah, uh, they're waiting for the Firebird to come, but their their communications are blocked. Something's happening around the warp gate, and that's when the Avatar of War comes out. <laughs> um, and Fulgrim says, "Let's go." <laughs> you know why not? Yeah. Got it. Say all the Space Marines are like, "Ooh, that's a bit." Ooh, and Fulgrim's like, "Brilliant, something yeah. new." Exactly, something new. Bring it on. Yeah. Now I love it. He's fighting it, and it's going back and forth. And they seem almost evenly matched. And he tosses the sword up in the air as a distraction. Because yes. I mean, and I you know, and he doesn't even want to let go of the sword. It's almost like the sword knows toss me as a distraction. Mm. I doubt. Yeah, I doubt. They're, they're, and not a bit. They're fighting, that's what they're fighting themselves almost to a, a kind of a, a stalemate. Right. You know, two godlike beings going at it, but the sword gives him the kind of you know, trust me. Yeah, so he tosses the sword up in the air. And it shows you how much that the Eldar hate. You know, they that the Avatar takes his eye off. Fulgrim is not the biggest threat in this fight. Right. And he looks over that's, at the sword, and that's when Fulgrim punches a hole in his head. 
Oh, yeah. And then starts choking it to death. And the thing is burning. He's like, you know, like a lava monster, practically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, old school rules were brilliant. It used to not be able to be hurt by any flame or um, laser based weaponry or melter, melter based weaponry. Oh, well, yeah, so makes you, sense. You, you couldn't even shoot it with a melter gun, we just wouldn't do anything. <laughs> so, but he punches a hole in its head and then starts choking it to death. And that's when the Firebird shows up and the Thunderhawks show up and the Eldars retreat. I mean, he just kills an avatar of war with his bare hands. Yeah, his hands are burnt black. His hands are burnt black, but yeah, they're like, oh, okay, now we now we got to go. Um, and the thing is, as he kills the Avatar of War, he sees what the Avatar sees, and he learns about the birth of Slanesh. As that soul hmm. is going out and getting getting going to get eaten, he sees that whole that you know that that birth of a of a being. Um. And so, you know, he kind of understands it. And it's, and it's a little scary to him. And the sword's not with him right now. No. And something in his head says, just leave it. Walk away from it. And there's the, the logical, rational Fulgrim once again. Yeah. You know, the, it shows it's, it's, not, it's not just accepting everything that comes his way. It's not a simple slide every decision. He's, he's fighting. Right. But Slanesh is, is working on every obsession that, that Fulgrim has. Right. Because um, his mind says, don't go get it, and he can't stay away, and he goes and gets it. Yeah. And he goes and gets it, and he steps on the ship, and at the and now, here we go. End of book one, he walks away, kill all the Laren, right? End of yeah. book two, they go to take, a, you know, they go to take the uh, flagship, and his glory is stolen, and he storms off in anger. End of part three, he gets on his ship, virus bomb all of these planets. Wait, virus bomb? You, are you even allowed to call down a virus bomb strike? You really? You're going to ask me that? Really? Mm. And that's what it comes down to. It's like the, you know, the only people who can order a virus bomb strike, at least according to the earlier books, were it's, the Emperor and Horus. Yeah. And he's like, I'm here. I'm calling it down. And so it ends with this huge destruction. <laughs> <laughs> Virus bombing all the planets. So whatever you guys built, whatever you guys were planning, die. Yeah. Oh, boy. And that's the end of book three. Um, So we're about 60% of the way done. Are we going to call it? Um, Yeah, probably should actually. We've been going like for four hours almost. We've got about three and a half hours recorded here. Okay, folks, we're going to call this an episode right here. We're not going to wait a full, obviously, a full cycle to come up with part two. We have it read. We have it ready to talk about. It's just getting late. We need to stop recording tonight. So, but I think we've got to break this up. There's just just too much we're talking about. It's too good. Hope you're not disappointed. Look at the bright side. You'll get a new episode in about a week as opposed to about six. So how's that? So... We'll be back with a lot more of Fulgrim for you guys. Fulgrim stuff, yeah. We'll just we'll, we'll we'll be back next week. Yeah. All right, Greg. Thank you so much for thank doing you. the reading at the beginning of the, no the beginning of the chapter. And uh, yeah, we'll just we'll finish this off next week. We'll have our last two books and then the wrap up and discuss the cover and all that good stuff. Brilliant. All right, and so until next time, folks. The Emperor protects. Death to the full symbol.
congratulations on completing another episode of After Eleanor. David and Greg would love you to come and chat some more about the Horace Heresy in the forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or on the Facebook page. Just search for After Eleanor. You can email us if you wish at greg at garagehammer.net or david at garagehammer.net. Finally, you can catch us on Twitter at After Eleanor, at Child of Fang for Greg and at Garage Hammer for David. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit the support page on the main website at garagehammer.net and you can leave a positive review on iTunes. In addition, you can tell all your friends to come and join the community. Many thanks for listening and until the next episode, may the Emperor protect you.